The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. So, good morning, everyone. Nice to be with you. Um, nice to see you. Um, let me just say a few things. So, um, about just kind of lay out what we'll do today. Um, first of all, um, I'm guessing most people who are here were here last time, but there may be some people joining this time who weren't with us last time. And so um, for the, for you, um, hopefully you got um, a copy of the notes. I'm going to take maybe like two minutes to just get recap what we did, but we're not going to review that unless there are some questions from people about that. And then I'll, and then, uh, but so, uh, you know, just look at the notes for that. And um, uh, I'm going to give an overview of what we'll do today. Um, so, but first, just the quick recap. <clears throat> so last time we um, took a few minutes to do just a little history. It was pretty brief <clears throat> about, you know, uh, the early days of Buddhism, um, how the, um, the, for those of you who are in the kind of connected in a place like the Sati Center, which is connected into the American insight meditation or the Western insight meditation scene, uh, comes out of Theravada Buddhism, but of course these days there's many other influences that, that come in. And um, so we talked about Theravada Buddhism, one of the, the only of the early schools uh, that of Buddhism that's still alive as a living school today. And then we <clears throat> we talked about how the teachings had been preserved uh, as an oral tradition. The language is Pali, and had been. Um, uh, handed down for a number of centuries as a, as an oral tradition until it was finally written down and kind of became in its fixed form. Maybe, I don't know, three, four, five, six hundred years after, after this all started uh, with the Buddha. And then we, so that's a certain teaching tradition is the word in Sanskrit sutra in more of the Sanskrit traditions. That'd be more the Mahayana traditions and the Pali and uh, the early Buddhist traditions. Sutta. And then we talked about how uh, um, a whole body of commentarial work developed as people were trying, you know, sincerely to express their understanding of the teachings and it evolved. And then this other important work, a treatise, was written by um, uh, Buddha Gosa, maybe, we don't know that it's five, six, seven hundred years after the Buddha, and that's called the Vasudhimaga. <clears throat> And these are both important because as the, the Buddhist tradition has preserved these teachings, they've come down through the centuries, uh, through the millennia. Um, we actually have these two bodies of work. There's the Vasudhimaga and there's the earlier suttas. And so we wanted to, because there's so much disagreement and controversy and I think confusion around this topic we're doing here, samadhi, uh, how does it fit in with meditation? We talk here about insight, all these different pieces. How do they fit together? So we're, we're going back then to the source, to the Pali, which we spent our time on last, we spent our time last time to look and say, what is Pali tradition, the sutta saying about this topic? And now today we'll, uh, uh, well, let me, so we went through, um, sorry, we went through uh, and looked at what do we mean by the term samadhi. We, we saw that it, it means undistracted. And one of the key points that I do want to say again uh, that's so important uh, is this idea that 
an undistracted mind can take, it's not just one way. And we talked about how it could be more a narrowly focused kind of attention, undistracted kind of on, they call it one pointed or exclusive concentration or fixed concentration more on a, in a narrowly focused. And you can also have a broad, more inclusive awareness. I'm, one of these is not better than the other. They're just different flavors in which the mind itself settles and is undistracted, but we, we're not as narrowly focused. We can be open to a wide range of experiences. So we talked about that. And then we went through some of the standard uh, lists that, uh, that, that are used to preserve the teachings, seven factors of enlightenment, we talked about the uh, Four Noble Truth, the, the Eightfold Path, um, Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing. We talked about um, Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundation of Mindfulness. And then we went through in a lot of detail jhana in the in the Pali. You haven't gotten to the Vasudhimagra. So that, that was last time. And then again, if you weren't here, please look at the notes. There's, I think it's, we did a pretty good job in the notes. Here's what we want to do this time. We're going to now shift shift over to the Vasudhimaga. What does it say about Samadhi and Jhana? Uh, we'll go through that. And then we can look at some of the controversies out there of um, is what is Jhana? Now, there's all these disagreements. We can sort of look what the source texts say, and we can go back and, and now compare them. We can look at what is this, what is this thing we call insight, uh, insight meditation, you're supposed to have insights to have this enlightenment or liberation. That's some, oftentimes taught as something different than concentration. If you remember from last week, it's not different from concentration in the suttas, right? It's all this one thing. We'll get into really a lot of detail about that. Uh, well, anyway, we'll go through a lot of these controversies. And then I want to really give us some time to... Um, now that we've gone through the text, really bring it up really alive into our own practices. And I'll, some of you may have questions or comments, but I'll also really um, spend some time on some of the things I think how we can apply this to um, our own practice and find what, what's our own pathway, what's our own doorway. And it's not going to be the same for everyone. We want to bring it very alive for us, spend some practice times. So that's, that's the, the, the today. I'll remind, as we did last time, um, that, um, <clears throat> you know, um, I'm, as you can probably tell, I, I'm quite happy just to talk the whole time. <laughs> I can do that. But I think it's good to have interaction. So I want to encourage comments and questions. Sometimes people kind of, you know, you wave your hand and I do try to look. I've, there's so many, you know, people on the screen. I, I'll try not to miss people. But also people have put comments in here. I want to shift a little bit. Last time when, when comments would come in, I'd often interrupt what I was doing and sh shift over and take the comment right there. And, you know, I think that's okay, but it could in, um, um, kind of stop the flow. So I, if you put a comment in or you're waving your hand or whatever, um, I may just keep going with what I'm doing for a while and then try to come to where it seems like a good stopping point so it's not so interrupted back and forth. But we'll try to get everybody's comment and question. So having said that, um, I wonder if, well, I was going to invite any questions or comments, but I'm just going to go 
and then um, I'll let you bring your, oh, and we'll take a break like we did last time, a 10 minute break at about the halfway point. Okay. I'm just going to start in and then, I, you know, you can put in questions or comments if you want. So if you shift to your notes, if you have your notes, it's fine if you don't have notes, obviously you can just listen. But if you go to page 10 on your notes, I have this section here called uh, Samadhi and the Vasudhi Maga. You can see that's, that's a big, long poly word, Vasudhi Maga. Um, maga is just kind of the pathway. So um, Vasudhi Maga is just translated as path of purification. So it was written in a round by Buddha Gosa. He did a, he wrote a whole bunch of things, but this was, this is not a commentary. It's a treatise, but it, it brings together the whole commentarial understanding at his, commentarial understanding at his time into one big book called the uh, Vasudhi Maga. And just as an FYI, you can see there, there's a, uh, one particular sutta in the middle length discourses called the relay chariots. And um, if you ever go, I give it to you there, it's Majjhima 24. I don't know how many of you are interested in going look at the suttas, but what that sutta does, it says this path of spiritual development, if you will, or whatever term you like to use, enlightenment, awakening, liberation, it's, it, it goes in stages and it's like someone in a, it's like the Pony Express here in America in the West, right? One horse would, you'd ride to one station, you'd get up another horse, next station, and so on. So it's like this series of, of, of relay chariots, and it lists these stages, I'm not going to talk about it here, of development you go through. doesn't give any ex explanatory detail at all. It just lists you have a certain insight, certain awarenesses, and, and it proceeds. doesn't explain it at all. What the Vasudhimaga does is it takes that structure and it goes into great detail explaining, according to their understanding, and it produces an entire system. Most of the Vasudhimaga, almost the whole thing, is devoted to uh, developing jhana. And they list 40 different types of meditation to develop jhana. We're not really going to go into that. If you're interested in that, um, if some of you have my book, I, I list it all in there as a reference. You, you contact me. I can tell you how to, how to get the information. You don't have to buy a book or anything if you want all these different meditation practices. But we might say just a little here about it. So um, there's a little bit in there about insight, but it's almost just a little footnote. Almost just a little footnote. I'm going to say more about that. It's, it's almost all a jhana practice. So let's just say a little more, um, uh, get into some more detail here. In the Vasudhimaga, the path of meditation is divided into two distinct paths, and they're not the same thing. They're called tranquility and insight, or in Pali, the insight is vipassana. There we hear this word vipassana. Uh, in um, in uh, the, the tranquility is called samatha. It's spelled like samatha, but the pronunciation is samatha, and that's that's uh, tranquility. You may notice that sometimes people uh, conflate or uh, the word 
they, they use Samatha and Samadhi interchangeably. They're not the same thing. What I just said is a little controversial, but um, uh, because Samatha is just the, is just the uh, tranquility itself. Uh, and it's a particular kind of tranquility, as you're going to see the way they define jhana. If you go back to the, um, to the Pali, and this will get into the controversies we'll discuss later, it actually, um, it's, it's, the samadhi doesn't just have tranquility. Remember, you can have this open awareness that's very inclusive, and a lot of things can be going on within the awareness of a concentrated mind. So it's not just a pure tranquility. There's other things happening. So well, I'll give you more d detail on, on that, that, that now. But here's the bottom line to it. In the, the Sudhimaga, they're very explicit. The path of samatha of tranquility means you first aspire to and attain jhana. And then you switch to this other kind of practice that we're going to describe but called uh, insight meditation. The path of vipassana does not attain jhana, you go straight to insight practices. And in fact, many of you will recognize that as the insight meditation seen here in, in like places like IMS and Spirit Rock and everything. It's, it's changed a little as over the, in the, in recent decades as they've brought, they've brought more, uh, of the Samadhi and jhana part in. But that's really been the scene for a long time. And I, I know given how many of us are here, um, I'll bet there's a number of people here who weren't taught to put a lot of emphasis on jhana or samadhi. And we'll get into later what, what are the practices we call insight meditation. Or you may have had samadhi concentration experiences and have teachers tell you to ignore them. Uh, you're not doing insight if you're doing concentration, something like that. Again, we're going to explain all this. So that's where it comes from, right here in the Sudimaga. It's a path that came out really, I think, in America here, more from, from the Bur a Burmese tradition with one particular great master, Mahasi Sayadaw. And they were purposely saying, you don't need a lot. You need, you need a certain amount of samadhi but, uh, to, to steady your mind, but we, we're not going for jhana. You're not doing insight then. And that brings up the whole question, well, are we saying you have to have this thing called insights to get the fruits of the practice? So we'll come to that. So two paths, samatha and vipassana. Um, as I say in here, what you do in samatha meditation, remember in Vasudhimaga land now, we're not in the suttas anymore. This stuff's not in the suttas. There is no samatha. Remember, we went through. There was no samatha versus vipassana. They talk about tranquility. Uh, they talk about you know the vipassana in there, but they actually don't lay them out distinctly as two paths of practice. Here in the Vasudhimaga, if you're doing the Samatha practice, what you do is you want to focus your attention on some object called a kasina. And um, um, they, they list all these different or some other objects. So the kasinas, maybe we'll get into a little bit on the 40 meditation practices just to name them. So, for example, there are kasinas which are you look at these colored discs and there are places in in some of the Asian cult countries where they'll make a disc and maybe it's about like a foot across out of some clay or something and it might be yellow white blue red some colors and there's some other casinos and you'll stare at the at the disc and that's a concentration object that's casino practice 
Uh, you work with breath. There's a lot of meta practices, uh, contemplations on uh, um, decomposing corpses. Those are that's a whole uh, class of practices. There's a lot of different practices that the, that you do, and they give go into a lot of detail in the Sudhimaga picking which practices they name are best for certain people. They they name temperaments. There's a faithful temperament, a skeptical temperament. Uh, you know, more of an intellectual temperament. There's all these temperaments they list. And so you have to figure out your temperament, find the right practice. So they go into a lot of detail there. Uh, and once you pick it, pick uh, your object, you want to meditate and you're trying to cultivate a very specific, they're very explicit on the kind of samadhi they want you to develop. It was the one pointed, fixed, exclusive samadhi. And in fact, they are, they're quite explicit. Remember in the suttas, remember that if you remember the similes, that was a jhana that you're very immersed in awareness in the body. Remember, we take the PT and we suffuse it through the body. Your awareness is very suffused in the body. In the Vasudhimaga, it's different. You want to become a fixed concentration. In fact, it's explicit that you'll get to a point where you can't feel your body. You can't feel your body anymore. And we're going to get to like, well, how do they come up with that? Since the sutta is your immersing awareness in the body, put that on hold for now, just to know that they actually want you to get not of these of these two kinds of samadhi. They want you to get the one pointed, fixed, exclusive. That's Vasudhimagajana. And then this question: is how, how do you practice? Uh, by the way, uh, from a practice point of view. If I gave you some meditation technique or object and it worked for you, you found the right one that was a good one for you, and you kept um, with it and you got more and more concentrated, on its own, if you didn't do anything, you would naturally aim, you would start steering in one direction or another towards exclusive samadhi or others would go towards more inclusive so each of us naturally kind of move in one direction or the other. And you can, you can aim it. And if you're going in one direction, you can aim it for the, to the other. Just to say that we don't have time to get into all how you do that. That's a practice question, but you, it's not hard. You can steer it. So here they want you to either naturally or to steer it towards exclusive concentration. And the idea is, is that um, you will get more and more concentrated on the objects. Basically, you're so good at concentrating on one thing that you just stop, you stop noticing other things around you. You're so good at concentrating on the one thing. That's what happens. That's what we mean when you lose awareness of other things. And they use the word absorption. You kind of become so absorbed in the awareness of the one thing. So if you started to see, say, bliss and light in your meditation, which can happen, you would become so absorbed in the bliss and light, and you would not be complaining if this happened. It feels great. You would become so absorbed in that that it would just be all bliss and light kind of a thing. And then the, the awareness of the body, other changing phenomena is lost, right? That's what they're aiming for. In Vipassana meditation, uh, the path of Vipassana, um, again, it can insight, what they call insight meditation can be practiced either after attaining this kind of jhana, you've gotten, they want you to have a strong concentration, then you back out enough to feel changing experience again, or you go directly to changing experience. And 
the idea there is you want to put your attention on some kind of changing experience. You have these insights. And the traditional view here of insight is they talk about what's called the three characteristics. Some of you have heard this of everything's impermanent or in the Vasudhi Maga, it's not that it's impermanent. They're actually looking in the suttas, it's there's impermanence. Things don't last. In the Vasudhi Maga, it's shifted. You're actually looking for change, the fact that things are changing in the moment. It's a little bit different. Or you see this idea we call no self or not self, which I think I talked about last time. It's not, it's, it's a bad definition we're stuck with. Um, in case you don't know it, uh, you have a self. <laughs> we all, it, what's the nature of the self? It's a changing phenomenon. It's that kind of a thing. So you look, so other things you have insights into and the ideas you really get it about that things are changing and insubstantial. There's a place in the mind that would profoundly let go. That's the, that's the idea of having insights. And so you'll turn your attention on specific practices, awareness of changing. In the, anyway, this is the kind of thing many of you have been taught in, uh, if you do insight practices and kind of in many traditions. Um, now, there are two kinds of uh, insight meditation you can have. Also, I'm going to the top of page 11 here. One thing is, oh, I got to back up. So you have something called momentary concentration. I'm going to describe that in a minute when we get down to uh, the levels of concentration on page 11. But you want to momentary concentration is you're not in fixed jhana where you lose uh, touch with changing experience. You want to get concentrated enough where you're sta- stable, but you haven't lost connection with change. Remember this, the Sudhi Magha is going to aim you to lose connection with change if in jhana. That's, their, that's what they want. Here, now you're doing insight, so you're not that concentrated. You're stable, present. It's called momentary concentration. That's not a term you'll find in the suttas, <clears throat> but it is here in the Vasudhi Magha. And um, if, you, if you did not attain jhana, they call this, you might hear this term, the Vasudhi Magha calls it dry insight. <clears throat> There's no negative connotation to the word dry. It simply means you have not been wetted, become wet by the moisture of jhana. That's what they say. I'm not sure why they use that terminology. Maybe it's because there's so much water imagery in the um, in the um, in the in the similes in the in, of the suttas. Anyway, that's something. So there's dry insight. You haven't had jhana or I, I don't know the term here, but um, you, you've had John, it's not dry, it's been wet. Okay. There's a lot of stuff here, but you can, we're just trying to get a feel, you don't have to remember every detail, but you feel it's a different feeling than in the suttas, right? Page 11, uh, where it says three levels of concentration. So uh, the Vasudhi Magga lists these levels. Not, again, this is not the suttas, but the first level is called preparatory concentration. Preparatory is just means whatever level of natural concentration you have, if you're a brand new beginner, you've never meditated, that you bring with you. That's called preparatory, whatever it is. Okay. Then as you um, uh, practice, um, you'll come to something called, they call it neighborhood, because you're in the neighborhood getting near jhana, 
or they call it access concentration. And many of you have heard the term access. Again, this is not a, you, there's no access concentration in the suttas. The term's just not there. But here, there's this thing called access. We're gonna, when we get down to the three signs of concentration on your notes, you'll, um, this doesn't go on and on too much longer. There's uh, three level, it, it, there's a lot of stuff here. That's Buddhists, you know, they like to just complicate it all up. Um, three levels of concentration and three signs, and then we'll, we'll um, that's all the stuff. So, so far, let's back up. Two paths of concentration, <clears throat> samatha vipassana, tranquility and insight. <clears throat> Uh, uh, insight meditation wants to use momentary concentration, not fixed. Three levels of concentration we're in now. Preparatory access, which we're going to define in, in a minute, concentration, which is pretty concentrated. And then finally, when you go into jhana, they call it fixed concentration. That was that exclusive fix, and that's it. And as I made a little note here, the bare insight meditator or dry insight practitioner takes up practices of insight into the rising and passing away of, you could look at the five aggregates, if you don't know what that is, don't want to get into the list, or other phenomena uh, using this thing called, I put the term there for you, kanaka samadhi, which is the momentary concentration. You want to put your attention on changing experience. So that's three levels of, con- uh, three levels of concentration. Preparatory, then you get to this thing called access and then fix. One more thing. There are th- it gives three signs of concentration. And they use the term nimitta here. This came up, someone asked the question last week. In the Pali Suttas, the term nimitta does appear. But it just means a theme. It's just, it doesn't appear very often. It's just a theme of something. Or it's never used as an object of meditation. Here in the Vasudhimaga, nimitta is, 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 is an object of meditation. And what happens is when you start, this is at the, in your notes at the bottom of page 11, you have some, you're putting your attention on, so we call it a meditation object, your breath, a casino, whatever it is. When you have beginning preparatory concentration, the nimitta is just your experience of however you experience your object. That's the nimitta. And then as you as it grows, you get something called, um, that arises here called the learning sign, that it's a certain nimitta. And this, they're very clear about this in the Vasudhimaga. You get a mental image in your mind that's supposed to arise. So just don't do this, but in the Vasudhimaga, it's there and they're very clear. Um, I will say here, um, I will say this is a kind of important practice question. Most people just aren't ever going to see a visual image uh, relatively. Some people do. It's not like one's deeper than the other. It's just how it. this is going to get into practice uh, at, uh, later this morning, how this arises for people. But some people will. So the Sudimago wants everybody to see. So you might see like some people, for example, very stereotypical, you'll see this round light, for example, that's the nimitta starting to come. And it'll, it's, not, uh, it's not a physical light there. It's a mental thing in your mind, but it's very, very clear. And some of you may have had that experience. That's the, nimitta, that's the learning sign coming. And then when that gets stronger and it gets to a point where it's just unmoving and crystal clear and just real steady and strong, they call that 
nimitta, the counterpart sign. That's a particular nimitta. And that's the sign that you're in access concentration. This, the definition of access concentration is not just you're getting pretty concentrated in your, and you're getting near jhana. The Vasudhimaga is very clear. You have to have this mental image, a nimitta arise. And when it's really clear and unmoving, you are in access concentration. That's the definition of access concentration. And you'll know, and again, you'll hear people use the term access concentration. Uh, but it, 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 you know, again, it's not a right or wrong. Neither of, none of this is right or wrong or better than anything else. It's just a different system here. Have to pause for a moment. That was a controversial statement. So uh, let me just say, well, that's me saying that. You have to look and see for yourself. That's why we're laying all this out so you can make your own judgment. Uh, people who adhere to the Vasudhi Maga may say, no, no, no. If you want to understand the suttas, you have to filter it through the lens of the Vasudhi Maga. That's explaining what's in the suttas. Other people say, no, no, no. Some people will say the Vasudhi Maga got it wrong. You'll hear that. I don't say that. It's just a different system. Just multiple systems are all good. It's not right or wrong. Just moved in a new direction. We don't know in the early days what happened. Were, were these people sitting around meditating, having certain experiences that are described by this Vasudhi Maga language, and thus develop these texts to explain that? Or did they develop the understanding first and then start practicing in a way according to that to give them the experiences. We don't know. But the people have these experiences we're talking about. Some of you may have. All this stuff is accessible if you want it. You get this image and then it becomes the object of your meditation. So if you had been with your breath, you're not with breath anymore. Then the object changes and now it's this nimitta. And then you have this absorption that happens, you know, where you kind of go into the nimitta and you're just kind of light and bliss or whatever it is. And that, that's, that's your doorway into John. So that's the basic kind of outline of what happens again. Samatha versus Vipassana. Um, let me see here. Yeah. Um, and um, I will take this up. Yes, some nimittas are audible or tactile. That is true. They, they, there are other nimittas that can um, that can arise. People seems to put a lot of image on the visual, but you can get. Some, but it says in the Vasudhi Maga, uh, like you can get a tactile, and it's more in the body. Uh, so you you can get other nimittas. Yes. Um, It's an interesting question, are all counterpart signs then visual, whether you start with a nimitta that could be in the body, they call it tactile or whatever. Well, the idea is at some point you're going to lose awareness of your body. So it all becomes more in the mental, purely mental landscape at some time, whether it's visual or not. But you, uh, I don't actually know the answer on the, I don't have experience in the, and people don't talk much about the uh, auditory or tactile. So I, I, I don't know the answer to that on all counterpart signs. The important thing is how is it for you? But I, I, I can't particularly answer that. All right. So some of you may have been practicing in a style that didn't emphasize jhana and or samadhi that much. Even just a, an, an insight, some of you on the samadhi side. 
Some of you may have heard these different terms. If you just want for reference, I did actually put all this reference here for you. Um, and we'll just do it quickly. There's not that much more we need to really say, and then we will pause for if there's discussion. On page 12, I just I, I listed here, actually I've forgotten I had put it in the notes, developing samadhi, 40 meditation subjects are given. I've got the list there if you want to look in your notes at the top of page 12. There's a lot there. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, uh, just another thing around terminology where I say, John, in the, in the middle of page 12. In the Pali Suttas, the four jhanas have been renamed in the Vasudhi Magga called Rupa jhanas. Rupa just means form. Um, the, in the suttas, what they call the formless attainments we talked about, uh, boundless uh, space, boundless consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. I, I, I mentioned those last time. We didn't spend much time talking about them. They're called the arupas. Rupa is form. A uh, is a negation in Pali. Arupas is formless. It, this is here in your notes. You can look at it. But, uh, they're called the arupas in the, in, in, in the suttas. In the Vasudhimaga, they call them arupa jhanas. They're not called jhanas in the suttas. So it's just terminology. And they're grouped together in the Vasudhimaga called eight attainments. Another thing of, of, of the 40 meditations objects, uh, Vasudhimaga's teaching is that all of them can get you to access concentration, but only some of them then will lead to jhana. This is just that whether it's really true or not, I don't know, but it's the system of the Vasudhimaga. And you can look I, which ones, I think I've listed it there for you. I may not have put that detail in there. And the key, it, the, the bottom line here is um, you lose awareness of the body and you lose awareness of changing experience. That's not actually true when you're in the state. This is, I, I don't want to get into too much. There is a little, but it's very subtle. You can still actually steer your mind to kind of notice things a little bit. That's a movement. It's a change. But it's a different kind of thing, right? Different system here. Oh, one other thing. So we go through the jhana factors. Remember there was PT and Sukha? Uh, from last time, and we had talked about how in the suttas, they're, um, they're not defined. They're just given as terms. And then oh, people have translated them, and we gave a whole list of translations. In, this, in the Vasudhimaga, piti, they're very explicit, and they give five kinds of piti. Five, they call it rapture. There's one that's like showering, where the, where the bliss is showering through your body, and there's, we don't need to get into it, but um, different kinds that are given there. So they're very explicit in the Vasudhimaga. Sukha is either pleasure or happiness, so they're clear. Vitaka vichara. If you remember last time, those were the most problematic uh, to actually get to the real original meaning, and it had two, all the translations of vitaka and vichara, this is a review from last time, had basically they were either some kind of 
mental activity, thinking and pondering, reflecting on things, or the directing and, and, and connecting and sustaining your mind on the object. The Vasudhimaga is clear. It's just the connecting and sustaining. And so you'll hear people say, the, you know, in, in, in the insight meditation scene, they'll, they call it connecting and sustaining. They're using the Vasudhimaga model. And then that, the, the fifth jhana factor, the ekagata, the eka means one. Last time we one, we could call it unification of mind, uni, one. Singleness of mind or one-pointedness. Here, fixed concentration, one-pointedness. Yeah? All right. The last thing I'll say, and then we'll pause here to see if anybody wants to uh, ask or say anything. The, um, I mentioned last time that the reason there's so many different opinions and views and teachings on what is jhana <clears throat> is that there are many meditative states that actually uh, match the verbal description in of suttas. So all these people teaching different, you know, jhanas, we don't have to have <clears throat> a disagreement with each other. They can legitimately be saying they're teaching the real jhana. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and so it's not a question, this is so important, of right or wrong. We don't need to be criticizing one tradition than the other. These are different systems. And the question is, what is the best system for each one of us? Actually, this is very important. And maybe I will just pause here for a moment and share something. This last week, uh, a number of people contacted me who would, some of you are here. I know, see your names who I spoke with this week, who had practice questions. It was great to connect with different people. I really, it was nice. I appreciate getting to know some of you. And one point I want to bring up that's so important. Um, no matter what method or technique or practice we, you, you take, doesn't matter what it is. It's going to work really well for some people. And for some people, it's just not going to work. And people who are experienced come to know this, but people who are new may not, and or maybe have to go through some suffering to learn. One person, or no, I'm sorry, more than one person this last week had been taught, I'm just using this as an example. It's not a criticism of any teacher, by the way. Uh, it's all good. The, the, one of the common things is, is that there's a particular style of mindfulness of breathing that, that some of you may know comes out of a particular teacher, Pawak Sayadaw, who's a, I interviewed him in my book. He's a, he's a great Burmese master. <clears throat> he, ins, he wants you to get the Sudhimagajana, which means he wants you to lose awareness of your body. They don't want you to feel your attent, your breath in, in, in your body. They, they actually want you to have a mental feeling. So this person was taught to do mindfulness of breathing. You have to pay attention to the breath at the nose. You don't have to pay attention to the breath of the nose. You can connect with it anywhere in your body, your torso. This was the teaching. And um, you had to feel it just at the very, very tip of the nose, not deeper inside or um, 
maybe even a little outside in space. Can you feel your breath like one inch away from your lip out in space? I can't. But you're sort of, it's, it's more of a mental kind of thing, right? Well, and so it wasn't working for, the, for a couple of people who'd gone through a lot of suffering about it. And it just wasn't a good fit for them. That style of, but, so let me just say, it's not, these are, so you'll find many teachers who do what I call, and this is not disparaging in any way, that's what I call, it's a one-size-fits-all practice. If you want to study with this teacher, this is the system, this is what you do. It's not good or bad. It's like, this is how I teach, and this is what you do. So if you want to do that, that's great. And um, if it works for you, it's really great. But it, it may not, but that's okay for a teacher just to say, this is my system, this is how I teach, and this is what you do. That's one style. Works well for many people. But if it's not working for you, there's nothing wrong with you. It's not you. You want to find the style of practice that works for you. And this is my own way. If some of you have done retreats with me, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just different. It's not better, but I just have a different way where I want to find each person's individual. What is the, the sweet spot, the real perfect best doorway for that person? For some people, it may not be mindfulness of breathing at all. Many, many other practices to find what brings it alive for each person. So find your own way. But I think the importance is of all this, again, just not a better or worse or a right or wrong. It's just a big world out there. And so I think rather than be confused, I hope we feel it's good news that there's a lot of options. And all of these options obviously have worked well for some people or the teachers wouldn't be teaching in that style. And so the whole trick is how do we find our own doorway in? So... That's a little a pausing place. And if some of you, I don't know if anybody's going to want to ask a question, but I'm just going to look um, here. So, so uh, let me just, so I'm pausing here to do some questions. And let me first just address a couple of things that came in the chat. These are great questions. Here's one. Without doing specific insight practice, if we do mindfulness of breath, is there a danger of getting stuck in concentration practice? and not gain insight. So that's the bottom line of this whole thing. I was going to get to this later in more detail. Or we will get more detail. Let me just say quickly now. Um, so there's this whole idea that, so we use these terms, liberation, enlightenment, realization, awakening, uh, I don't equate all of those. You, you'll find, uh, first of all, just to know their terminology. For me personally, I kind of lump enlightenment, uh, awakening, and realization in one. I equate those, but to me, liberation's not necessarily the same thing. So just to be clear on, as we use terminology, you may have your own views about that. But the idea of this enlightenment, if you will, this liberation, is you're, you're supposed to have this thing called insight practices we talked about a little bit and do practices called insight that's what's going to do it pure concentration isn't going to do that that is a whole system that comes out of this vasudhi maga actually as i said the vasudhi maga the place that gives pure insight in the vasudhi maga it's literally a footnote to a paragraph and if you read the vasudhi maga that's all it is out of this giant book that's true that doesn't i'm not denigrating it or or 
but that's just what it is. And a whole system, the whole world of insight meditation came out of that one little footnote. I can show you the footnote if you, if you want to contact me off. Well, if, if, if you're brave enough to read the Vasudhimaga. I had to read it because I was writing my book, but um, um, whew, it's, a, it's, it's a heavy sledding, let me tell you. Um, so um, that's just one view that says you have this. So I'm getting into controversial territory. I realize that just because I say it doesn't mean it's true. I mean, it is true, but, um, you know, <laughs> but uh, look, the idea is you have to have this thing called insight to have the liberation, right? That's the whole system. I'm saying something different. I'm saying that that's great for those of you who practice pure insight. I've been in that world for a long time. I, I know it. Uh, see what benefit and fruit you get for yourself. Just look and see, do, do it. But what I'm telling you is that um, it's actually not true that you get into this other thing called concentration and you're going to get stuck in something and can't do insight. Everybody I know who's um, who is strong samadhi and jhana practitioners, all without exception, I've known many because of my book, I, a lot of people get attracted to me and I've talked to many, many people, see the power that it actually supercharges your insight. Nobody gets stuck in concentration and can't gain insight. That's what they say. It's never happened to anybody. Look for your own practice. If you do the concentration practices, if any of you have been, let me ask you a question. If, if you've been on retreat or in daily practice, some of you haven't, that's fine, but look into your own experience. Would you say, I already know the answer, would you say that as you drop deeper into the retreat, so you've gotten more concentrated, rather than losing connection with what's going on, it actually enhances connection with what's going on? By having a concentrated mind, you don't lose insight, you supercharge your insight. You're just not, if something's going on in the body, you know it. You don't have to even go looking. Sometimes you want to go look. Something's going on in the mind. If you're clinging, if you're suffering, it's, it's just there for you. And you really can see and perceive what's going on and the cause of your suffering and the way to let it, let it go. So I'm not saying that's better. I, you know, if you're not drawn to, I've been a, a Samadhi guy my whole, that's kind of been my path, but people go get tremendous fruit and benefit without emphasizing Samadhi. Again, it's just different, different ways. But it's just a, it's just an, it's just a belief people have and they've been taught it because of this Vasudhimaga model that, you know, you'll get stuck in concentration, can't gain insight, gain insight. First of all, I'm going so far as to say you don't have to gain insight. Well, that's not true because if you, if you sit and practice, you'll get insights. But there are lots of people who actually don't experience it so much as insight. They just go into a profound place of equanimity from the body and the mind's in a place of non-clinging and letting go and liberation. And they don't really feel it as an insight kind of practice. You see, it's, it, so, it's, so all of these different paths are fine. Don't worry. In fact, I want to go back. Um, ooh, I didn't see, I, I didn't put it in your quote in your notes, but there's a quote from the, from the Buddha. And he says, it, he's quoted explicitly this is pretty close. He says, he's talking about Samadhi and Jhana and says, 
It should not be avoided. It should not be feared. To paraphrase, he basically says, go for it. You should pursue it. You should cultivate it. He's not saying, watch out, be careful. He's saying, go for it. Now, remember, they're doing sutta-style jhana that's immersed in body awareness. They didn't have the Sudhimaga style back there, so I don't know what he would say about that. One more question. I can feel I'm being a little, uh, stirring the pot here a little, but that, you know. Right, I was under the standing that a kagata, chitta, the sakagata, different between the suttas and the vasudhi, of the Vasudhimaga. That's right, that's what we're talking about here. Or is it inaccuracies in the translation? No, no, it's, it's, that's what we're talking about. This ekagata, we've already, I'm just repeating, was these two styles. Fixed concentration, we call it one-pointedness, or unification mind, which is open and inclusive. They're just two different understandings and experientially different. Uh, it's not clear on page 12 that the 40 meditation subjects are serving samatha or insight. Right. So um, those are the 40 meditation subjects. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to go through the whole list here, but uh, some of them are in service only for insight. They'll only take you to, to access concentration. And some of them uh, will take you to jhana, but it's, it's different ones of the different lists. I just didn't get it. We're just not going into that level of the detail here. But this, they're all of these 40 practices in both uh, uh, branches of the practice. And I forgot one last thing. When, remember I was talking about momentary concentration? You're supposed to do momentary in insight practice. In the Vasudhimaga, momentary concentration is defined as the same level of concentration as access. Momentary and access are the same thing. But in momentary, you don't get, it, you don't get the nimitta. So technically, you can't call it excess concentration. So they don't just mean in momentary, you know, be pretty concentrated. It's a high level of samadhi, even for the insight. All right. That was a lot. It's going to get better from now on. That was just a lot, a lot of detail and stuff. And so, you know, you've got the notes if you want to go back and look at all that. But you just kind of want to have heard it and been exposed to it. That's the Sudimaga. Okay. While we're pausing here, I'm going to just kind of so our brains can uh, get uh, settle a little before we're going to shift. By the way, you can see where we're going to shift on page 13 of your notes. Now, now it's all going to get interesting as we can sort of apply this. Um, here's a quick comment. Is it fair to say that to enter the jhanas as a, uh, as a prerequisite is to be free from the hindrances? Yes, and we mentioned this briefly last week also. So if you remember the, um, um, the jhana definition, it said, I'll just remind you from the text here real quick. Just one moment, sorry, let me pull it up. In the definition, it starts quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. 
and then you enter the you know the first jhana. So sensual pleasures, we said, meant you just got to set aside external distractions enough so it's not pulling your mind too much. You know, find a you know a conducive environment to meditate, and then unwholesome states. That that means uh, it doesn't say it explicitly, but everybody takes that to mean you've got to let the the hindrances have to be settled out enough so that you can temporarily just settle down enough so that you can start to calm your mind a little. And what it means is it doesn't mean hindrances won't come up. Of course, we all know that. Then we work with them, right? If you're you're being with mindfulness of breathing and then other things are going on, you don't want to struggle against that. Maybe let go of the breath and have to tend to whatever else is happening that's stirring you up, the hindrances. And then when you're ready, you come back to your object. So, yeah. Secluded is not the same as free. That is correct. Someone says secluded is not the same as free, right? So some of you may know if you get um, uh, strong enough in your samadhi, there's no distraction. Literally a construction project could be going on right next to you. Somebody's got a jackhammer going. That wouldn't phase you at all. That may seem like you've got to be kidding me. But um, some of you may know this. Um, uh, there's literally, it just doesn't matter anymore. There's no distraction, but that's getting pretty deep in, right? So mostly we want to just seclude. We're not free. We're susceptible. That's why you have to seclude ourselves. Eventually we don't have to worry about secluding because you just are in that state of seclusion. I guess there's a way to say it. Okay. So, all right, well, let's just move here. Let's look on page 13 here. I, I listed what I call three different main controversies I could think of out there. First controversy, we've already been talking about, what is jhana, right? All these different people saying, oh, that's not jhana. They're teaching jhana. No, this is the real jhana, right? Well, who's right? Actually, they're all right. And we're not just being sort of nice about it and and inclusive they're they're all right if what you're teaching matches those words in the definition you can call it a jhana Um, one of the big big uh controversies about jhana we've been talking about is there body awareness in jhana or not well, we already know in this, and so, and how does the Vasudhi Maga, we're going to answer this question now, how does the Vasudhi Maga get away with it, saying you can't feel your body anymore when in the suttas it's so explicit that there's body awareness? Here's the answer to that. Um, I, I'm just sort of paraphrasing what's on your notes on page 13. Uh just in the definition itself, everything is highlighted about immersing in the body, the body, the body. You can't get away from it. It's, it's integral uh, uh, to the definition of jhana itself, both as a way to get into deepen into jhana in the similes and as um, uh, the, the actual nature of being in the state. You're just immersed in body awareness. And actually, the suttas even go further. There is a sutta I list on page 13. There's a, um, a sutta called the 
Kaya Gatasati Sutta, which is the Mindfulness of the Body Sutta. I list it there for you in the Middle Length Discourses, number 119, if you're interested. And what they do is, it's very interesting, they take the body practices of the Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, and it goes through all those, one by one, through those practices of the Satipatthana, and it explicitly goes through them again, just like in the Satipatthana, and then it adds in, and this is the way you get you attain jhana. So it's it's as explicit as can be in the body. It, awareness is a key element of jhana in the Pali Suttas. Okay, that's that's a big deal. And experientially, for those of you, if you practice this kind of jhana, remember it's the open, inclusive awareness. You don't lose change. It's that still forest pool of um, still forest pool of Ajahn Chah, right? Um, I will say, from a practice point of view, some of you will know this for yourself. Things get very subtle. So as as you get deeper in, the experience of the body becomes, it feels more like a body of vibration or of energy or of light. It can be like that. And so we're still immersed in the body, but experientially the body's kind of, the experience of it's dissolving away. And it actually, this is another, is controversial, but I say really the Vasudhimaga and the, and the, and the Sutta style kind of end up feeling kind of similar. Whether you uh, leave the experience of the body behind and go into this kind of light and bliss, or whether you go through the body and it dissolves away into light and bliss, uh, they both kind of get you there. So anyway, that's the suttas. What is it? What does the Vasudhi Maga say? Uh, here's what they do: the word for body is um, kaya. As a matter of fact, that sutta I just told you, kaya. Gatasati, kaya, body, sati, mindfulness. Kaya means body. The Vasudhi Maga changes the definition and they just say um, it's the metaphorical mental body. That's what they do. They just say we're talking about, we're using the term body, but it's a, quote, mental body. So you can say that, right? Uh, and say we've changed the definition now. And that's why we can say that you lose awareness of the physical body and you're this mental realm. That's what they do. That's how they, I should say, get away with it. But <laughs> that's what they do, right? Um, well, let's just take a look at that. They can do that. That's their system. Great. Uh, I'm arguing that they're not, interpreting the suttas, they're just creating a new system. Um, you can, so the word kaya does mean a group, an aggregate, uh, this is in your notes, a collection or a body. So it could be used to refer to any group or body of things, sure. But let's look at it here. Not only in the, uh, uh, if you look in the in the jhana definition, I mean, to me, it's a little hard to think that it's going in some mental body when you're suffusing through the body, but okay. But let's go back to the Kaya Sutta. 
that one I just mentioned that goes through all these foundations of mindfulness, it's clear, nobody, even the Vasudhi Maga folks do not argue that most of those are, they, everybody agrees it's talking about the physical body, right? And then there's the very last section. I don't want to get into the sutta itself, or you can look it up if you want. Um, uh, there's a seventh section they add in there that's also talking about the body. And that's where the Vasudhimaga says, now the meaning suddenly changes, and now it means a f- mental body. Well, all I can say about that is you can, you can say that. It's hard to imagine that the whole sutta is talking about the physical body, and then one little place at the end, it suddenly completely shifts the meaning to mean the mental body, especially without signaling it's doing that, and especially if it's so important that, um, that, it, that it not mean the physical body. It just they keep doing the same thing through the whole mindfulness of the body, and at the end, somehow, we say, well, they've changed the meaning. So my point here is um, that you can make your own conclusion, but I think it's pretty clear that, again, it's not right or wrong, but it's just we've got, over the centuries, a new system evolved. And we shouldn't judge one from, except from within its own system, but from outside the system, we don't need to judge the other. But I'm just saying uh, the Sudhimaga is not an interpretation of the suttas. It's a new and distinct system, that's all. And it's pretty clear when you look at this. That's what I say. And you can look, go look at those suttas yourself. I can go pull it up if we need to, and you can, if we want. So the bottom line is pick your choice. It's all good. How do you know if you're in access concentration if there's no nimitta? By definition, you're not in access concentration. You have to have a nimitta. You would be in momentary concentration. Oh, and someone asked, body of the, does this body mean body of breath or the physical body? That is a point of contention, yes. And that's, that's a different, you know, when they talk about body, the Vasudhi Maga, you know, when you're bringing mindfulness of the body. Anyway, it's a different, someone just asked a question. It, there are different ways people um, um, use this term. We won't get into that now. Um, okay. So we got these two different jhana systems. Well, if you go to page 14, now we're really getting into some interesting territory. Are samadhi and insight two paths or are they one path? Well, this is getting back to the whole thing we were talking about earlier about, you know, there's this path of insight. You do this particular thing, this practice called insight meditation. You'll hear this a lot. I'll tell you just a quick story. Um, I don't teach at Spirit Rock uh, anymore, but I used, I used to teach many, many retreats there all the time. And I, I would be on, they have a retreat called the Concentration Retreat. I, maybe they still do it. Uh, uh, I think it's a 10-day, something like that, two-week, I forgot. 
I've taught it a few times. And um, just by the fact, you know, they teach all these retreats and then they have one called the concentration retreat. That's telling you right now that they're looking at it more really from a Vasudhi Maga lens that concentration is something different than a regular Vipassana retreat. Right. And so, um, uh, um, I was there trying to, you know, offer, they, you know, we were all working together, but I was offering a perspective of not separating out concentration and insight as separate practices, all this one thing. Um, but they taught in a way that said, you know, you can, you can, um, do these concentration practices. And at the very end of the retreat, they said, okay, now if you want to switch to Vipassana, go, go do that. And I guess people were changing techniques. So that's one way you can look at it. And it does get back to the idea that if you're doing concentration, you're not doing insight, right? And if you think insight, whatever you mean by insight, is important and necessary in this path, and if you think concentration is going to be this fixed concentration where you lose changing experience so you can't do insight, then yes, in that model, concentration and insight are two separate paths. So that's of one view. If you look at the suttas, I think, and this is, uh, it's different. They never explicitly separate them out. Right? And so you have to find your own way, but they don't have to. I got a lot of details in here. I, I'm quoting all suttas that, that talks about uh, how it's through the jhanas that actually have the liberation and the insight. So there's, you can look at the text yourself. It's not to prove anybody's right or wrong, but there's a different, there's another system. And this is something, this is how I practice is, is that let's bring our mind, let's get as concentrated as we don't chase after concentration. Don't make it an object of uh, grasping and clinging, but go for it. Take it as far as you want. Just don't make it an object of grasping or clinging. Most of us um, probably will make it an object of grasping and clinging, and that does create suffering. And, you know, then we learn and learn to let go. Uh, that's part of the insights right there, actually. So, um, but if you take the concentration as far as you can, and then we'll be aware, we'll notice which, which way are we going. Are we going to a fixed concentration? Or are we going to an inclusive? And, you know, that getting further in. And then notice for yourself, because I think most people find that the more concentrated you are, your mindfulness is naturally clearer. Even without doing anything, your mindfulness is clearer. All the insights that are needed come because you're so present and so deeply connected. All the heart qualities come. It's all there. You don't have to separate them out as two paths of practice. And that's just another way. That's kind of the way, the way I do it. We synthesize it into one thing. So the, 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 the short answer here is, um, um, are they two paths or one? Take your pick. And which system are you practicing in? And then that will be your tradition or your system. I'll come back to some of the questions in the comments in a bit.
the main thing I hope that I want would like to convey here is not only have we looked into this term samadhi and different ways it can manifest and that it's talked about with source texts, but we look at some of the controversies and we really what I'm hoping to say is we actually don't have to have any disagreements or controversies. We can just see different pathways. And one's not like the way. And if someone, by the way, I'm not going to name any names, but I could, people who I personally know and respect and lots out there who will say, no, no, that's nice, Shankman, what you're saying, but actually there is one right way. I teach really what the Buddha really taught right from the suttas. This is the real way. And that's okay. People, they're all, they're all disagreeing with each other as they're doing that. But um, so uh, <laughs> they're each of them over here are saying the same thing, but they're teaching opposite practice. So it's just, that's how it kind of, it's always been that way. This is the, even, even back in the earliest days, when they had the first great council two months after the Buddha died, they did that because people were having all these disagreements about what the real teaching was. It started right from the beginning. I think it's kind of human nature, right? And we, because we all have our own sincere understandings. So I've given you a lot of, um, I've given you a lot of, uh, between page 14 and 15, you can look there. There's a lot of quotes from different texts you can look at to get into a little bit more detail about this idea of what's the suttas really saying in the, the Sudhimaga. So, um, if you want to go in more detail. Let's just do one more thing and then we could take a break. And then when we come back, Um, we'll sort of pull it all together and then really try to spend some time. Um, how do we apply this to practice for each of us? Okay. So on page 16 of your notes, I said, is John a necessary for liberating insight? Well, already, I realize as I wrote this, that I've sort of taken one particular view, um, which I don't necessarily, uh, so I, I you may notice this, that I'm kind of an outlier. I just want to name that, some of the stuff I'm saying, um, and hopefully it won't be um, disconcerting for anyone because you know if, if you disagree with what I say that's fine just um, I'm, I'm saying that liberate insights not necessarily a, a requisite for liberation that's probably blasphemy but um, I'll say, I'm just repeating what I said earlier, probably you can't do any kind of these practices, whether you get a lot of jhana or just, if you never could get concentrated at all, which it's not possible, uh, and some of you are going to say, wait, 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 I'm not getting concentrated. Come talk to me offline. If you just sat to be present with yourself, we say sit, lie down, get any posture. 
even if you don't judge yourself as getting much of a steady mind, just being able to sit and be with yourself and be present with all your suffering and pain and everything comes up, a huge amount of learning and, and let, learning to let go and let be would happen. It'd be amazingly powerful. You actually can't meditate without having some insights arise. So I do want to say that it's always built in. But what I want to reemphasize what I said earlier, some people may view when they have whatever their experience, this gets into the whole question, what's the experience of enlightenment? What's the experience that we call liberation? Maybe we can have a, maybe we can have a discussion about that. What's the experience of liberation? Uh, what do we mean by that? Uh, it could be interesting if you want to. I don't think that's going to be the same for everyone. Um, Some people will feel that it was connected with some insights they had, and it really made up tremendous openings for them. But um, uh, many people don't really experience it like like that. Through the samadhi, the mind goes into this powerful uh, uh, equanimity in which the mind's just in harmonious flow with things. It's not reactive you're, you're you're really in a kind of a liberated place and it's the equanimity that came and you may not uh, associate it directly because i had some kind of insight into changing phenomena for example so once again once again it's not one way for everyone so i i don't want us just to auto, take it as an article of faith that you have to have this thing called insight uh that is the system in most of our you know if you go to spirit rock or whatever well, I'm not around the scene as much as I used to be. I, I'm not sure exactly how it's being taught in this last decade. However, we're going to ask this question, is jhana necessary for liberating insight? Because it may not be necessary in everybody's path to have this thing called insight, but it is a powerful path. And is jhana, it, it, what, do the, what do the suttas say? Well, in the Vasudhimaga, we already know in that system Jhana is not necessary for liberating insight because one of the paths, remember the two paths, samatha and vipassana, tranquility and insight. Um, The path of vipassana, of insight, was a path that purposely does not aim for jhana. By the way, in that system, if you're not aiming for jhana and you're just doing what they call pure insight, but you end up falling into jhana, then sorry, you're on, you're on the samatha path now. Can't get out of it because you had jhana. <laughs> so, but uh, they have a path. It's a path of pure insight or dry insight. It's not wetted by, wetted by the moisture of jhana. The Sudhimag is clear. You don't need jhana for, for it. Um, I think in the suttas, um, you know, I, I list here, there are some examples in the suttas. I don't know if the, these are kind of apocryphal, some of these stories, whether they are good teaching stories or it really happened, of people where they would just hear a talk from the Buddha and gain this tremendous awakening. You know, I, I we don't know. Um, it could be that people were, you know, I've been around some people who had, a, a, not not that many, but where it was just, palpable the presence of being with them and you just felt and knew whatever that person has I will that's what I want you know you could you just felt their presence so I'm imagining the Buddha probably had a pretty amazing presence and maybe people really could things could really have happened so you know uh, I could certainly imagine that 
However, um, uh, for the, so let me back, we're going to have, there's this, maybe we might do this after the break. There's something called the, the four stages of enlightenment, something called stream entry. And you go through these stages and the, the final one's called Arahat. And that's kind of the model in Theravada Buddhism. In that model, I haven't named what the model is now, but we'll come back to it. Maybe it's worth talking about. In that model, uh, it, it's pretty explicit that to become what they call an arahant, that's the fully liberated, enlightened person who's attained nirvana, nibbana, you need some kind of samadhi. It's, it's pretty, it says that. But as you get to these other stages, um, I'll just say um, it's less clear um, how much you need according to the suttas. Um, whether you to have this liberating insight has to have uh, uh, jhana. Is it required? But again, remember, jhana is uh, right samadhi of the Eightfold Path is defined as the four jhanas, if you remember that. So, you know, they are making a big deal about it. So we've seen that there are uh, uh, different interpretations of jhana. Is there body awareness or not? Depends on your jhana system. Um, um, by definition, they all have the jhana factors present, right? It's just which kind of samadhi you have, exclusive or inclusive. Is the path of concentration and insight, are they two distinct paths or one? Depends on your system. And there's not a right or wrong, just different systems. And um, is jhana necessary for liberating insight? In the Vasudhi Maga, no. In the suttas, I think, uh, much more emphasis on the samadhi. You can look at the quotes yourself, but it's not 100% clear. So where are we left with before you go on break? Um, someone said define having an insight. Um, um, actually, uh, let me just define having an insight or, ha or insight. Uh, and it'll be interesting, maybe some of you have your own connotation of that term. So traditionally, the insights were into uh, really insights into what you call the three characteristics. So I mentioned them earlier. Let me say a little more. This will be quick. Three characteristics of existence or of all experience. In Pali, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca is impermanence. Dukkha is the word translated as suffering. Um, it's a big topic. It's actually, um, I think I mentioned last time, if you look in the Pali Tech Society, Pali English Dictionary, at least the old, I don't know, it's probably online now, but the old print version, didn't I say this last time? It's like in an eight and a half by 11 book, a big book, 10 point font, small text. Two and a half full pages to define dukkha. Remember, we did talk about this. It means, um, I'll just recap. It means, uh, it really means the wheel of an axle that's out of balance or out of round. It just means you get a bumpy ride. Uh, the word sutta is uh, suffering is a fine definition. Personally, I like either unsatisfactory or unreliable. Because things are always changing, another characteristic. 
uh, and, and the non-self, the third characteristic is your own being is just a conscious flow of changing experience. Because things are always changing, any experience is going to change, nothing's going to last. So if you're clinging, you're, yes, the dukkha is suffering. If you're not clinging to things and you're just flowing in harmony with things, you still get the bumpy ride, but you're not, it's not suffering. So dukkha has a wider range. I like un, unreliable, but suffering is fine. So having direct, powerful insights into these things, I'll just give you one other example. I remember being on, a, this was on, a, I was on a very long retreat and I got through the Samadhi. I actually, you know, uh, I was in this place. It's sort of thinking of it now, it's kind of feels odd, but if someone um, liked, well, but Duca doesn't have to be bummer. It's just kind of, the, <laughs> it could be bummer. Someone said, I like to define Duca as a bummer, <laughs> uh, which, you know, that's good. It works. Uh, but actually, if you're not having a problem with the things they are, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's not a bummer. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I like it. It's funny. Um, I had my, my perceptions completely flipped around where if, if I were to say to you right now, Pick any experience you're having, visual, in your body, sounds. And I say, can you notice it? You'd say yes. Then I say, can you notice the fact that the experience is changing? I'm guessing most of you would say something like, well, now that I make a point of it, I mostly notice the experience, but if I make a point of it, I can notice the fact that it's changing. This happened to me on retreat where it flipped around where what was popping out to my awareness was just change itself, not a concept, just experientially. And then if you asked me, I could make a point to notice the experience itself. But mostly it was just so overwhelmed about just change. That's a profound direct insight into changing phenomena. That would be, you call it an insight into impermanence or change. You know, I, maybe it helped me. I, I, did some good. I don't know. It's just something that happened. Um, my way has been more just right into the equanimity, but that's an example of, for, you know, where you can have an insight. And traditionally, I would expand that. This is not the tradition, but I, I think many people would expand it to include any perception or awareness. You could say insight into, it could be psychological, into anything that helps illuminate how the mind creates suffering and the way to let it go. So you might have a psychological insight and you notice some way where you, whatever, you know, you, you had some childhood experience and now you're carrying some stance or attitude towards life and, and it creates something. When you have the direct realization, maybe you can heal it or it lets go or something. And it can be very liberating. So I would open up to anything that moves in, in the direction of freeing the mind from suffering as an insight. But that's kind of the tradition. Um, I think we should, okay. Um, let me see here real quick. Um, let's do this. Um, we'll break when we come back. I would actually like to take um, just a moment to talk about this model of stream entry because some of the questions, some of you might know what is that, but I think we should talk about it briefly um, and the stages of enlightenment. And then also um, 
then we'll we'll kind of summarize up. If you look if you look on the last few pages of your notes, I kind of bring it together as a conclusion. And then um, I'd like for us to then we'll have some time to really focus. Then now with, we've got all this understanding and background. How does that inform our practice? That's what I would like to do. So it's uh, let's see, ten twenty-five. We'll break uh, ten minutes for to, and um, uh, ten thirty-five. Okay. By the way, someone in the chat sent me just to me, and they were asking what I thought about how I relate to and regard the teachings on John are presented. They named two particular teachers, Lee Brasington and Shyla Catherine. They teach very differently in what I think. Well, I think it's exactly what we've been saying. They teach in very, very different. They're aiming for different. Shyla's very Vasudhimaga oriented. Lee Brasington is on the very light end of you know, Jhana, and uh, he has a particular practice style, which we may talk about, about practice. Uh, so um, um, I, I've known him for a long time. He's a great guy. And, you know, a lot of people have gotten tremendous benefit practicing with him. So, you know, it's, again, it's just, there's just different ways. And it may be that if you're not sure that you need to experiment a little, and if you're drawn, first of all, you might be drawn to some practice or teacher or teaching, so follow that and just check it out. See, and if you feel like you're getting benefit, it's working for you, you trust yourself and please go with that. And if it just doesn't feel quite right or if, if something else is drawing you and well, let me try this, you don't want to spend too much time bouncing around all over the place. But we do want to be open uh, and trying different things and stay with it a little while. See, you'll know. And then um, eventually something will become clear to you and you might stay that with that for a while or a long time, and then maybe you'll change and shift again and what is needed shifts. So I feel like if we can trust ourselves, um, you know, I really feel like the, um, the most important thing that we're learning, probably one of the most is to trust, I call it our inner knowing, our inner guidance or our inner teacher. And um, we become more attuned to that over time. Right. And of course, our greed, hatred, and delusion can mask as our inner wisdom, but you know we so we have to learn. But we want to hopefully err on the side of trusting ourselves, following that, and then we let the feedback inform us. And if we went in a direction that turned out not to be the best for us, that's all right. We learn. We don't have to beat ourselves up about it and just go, oh, okay. And then we learn and we know more, and then we shift and, and keep moving on. So I don't think you can go wrong with any different teacher approach. Try something out. See. Okay. Well, just going on with the notes, I have the whole conclusion section here. And so again, uh, maybe it doesn't seem controversial now, and I'm, I'm really not trying to be controversial, but I make a strong statement at the top of page 17. I say that the Sudhimaga, it's has a presenting a path of meditation and the states that you contain that's, I said, new and distinct from the Pali Suttas that evolved over the centuries. And so you've got these two different systems. Um, yeah. 
and we I'm just I'm sort of just reading a little here just to, just to summarize here. In the Vasudhi Magga, there's these two paths, tranquility and insight, their path of jhana and dry insight. Uh, and that's because in the Vasudhi Magga's model, insight cannot, first of all, they say you have to have this thing called insight, and insights cannot arise. That's what the, the view of, of the text itself is when you're in that jhana. You want to get it to, so you have this clear mind and then pull out to be able to do insight practices. So the whole, that's the whole reason to do develop the tranquility is so you have a powerful mind for insight practice. Suttas never make such a dis- clear distinction, although people can find canonical evidence to support any view you want. Um, uh, I think the practice of right samadhi and the suttas tends to integrate uh, tranquility and insight into one practice. That's, that's a perspective I'm offering. Um, and again, the Vasudhi Maga, I've actually put together a table for you, I think, on page 18, where I sort of summarize a comparison between suttas and Vasudhi Magas that you can look at. But basically, um, um, you can see in your table there um, that the four jhanas have been re- re- renamed Rupa jhanas. The only reason for looking at this is just so when you hear these terms, you just understand so you're not confused. <clears throat> you just don't want to be confused when you hear the terms. That's why we're just bothering with this. The arupas and the suttas are called arupa jhanas in the Vasudhi Bhaga. Types of concentration, one-pointedness in the Vasudhi Bhaga, unification of mind in the suttas. Body awareness in jhana, we've already talked about the, the, two, the differences. Uh, insight meditation practice, Vasudhi Bhaga, insight must be outside of jhana. Um, not so clear in the suttas. The term nimitta, uh, that's not really used in the suttas, but it's very uh, central in the Vasudhi Magga. And the terms preparatory access and fixed concentrations, they, they're just not used. You don't find them in the suttas, but they're Vasudhi Magga terms. So we just see some of these differences here. And uh, I think that got us through the notes. Um, By the way, um, so I want to, um, again, you, you'll ask questions if you want, but um, I'd like to maybe shift our conversation now, got just over an hour, um, more practice-oriented. We've all been talking about practice, but this has been more, I, I guess, maybe the theory or just the conceptual about it. So now, how does this, how do we map it onto our practice? Uh, and someone just shot me a message when I said learning to trust ourselves. They were appreciative, but said, I'm st- still totally compu- confused. I appreciate your encouragement. So look, it can be that way, and you're not alone. Lots of people can feel that way. So, um, you know, it'll clear up. But it's an interesting thing. We talk about being confused when we realize that there really isn't a right or wrong or one way better than another. Um, I hope rather than being confused, I don't know what this person meant by in the ways that he or she or it's a he or is confused, but um, excuse me. Um, um, 
part of the confusion might be just all these different teachings in different ways and how do they all map together and that I, I, I don't know if that's what this person means but when we take it down to experientially um, there is a way to be with our experience in which there's no confusion if you just connect with some experience there is just the experience we may have confusion what do we mean or you know how do i understand it or something but just the bare experience is just what it is without putting a label on it so for example if you're doing a practice of mindfulness of breathing again that may not be your best practice but many people do that find a place where you can feel your breath in your body whether it's air near the nose or just the physical movement of the torso, whatever, or your belly, whatever it is, is check and see, is there a confusion there? Or you're just, you, you feel something, unless you don't. And if you don't feel something, you would, you know, find a place where you could feel. And just let go of any worry about it. Is there, is there something I'm experiencing? And then we just bring our attention to connect with that. We're using the object to help train the mind to come back and back and learn to settle. And it doesn't have to be a confusion. And then what will happen is things will start to change and shift. And I'll speak, since we're in really emphasizing the samadhi side in this, in this class, you will start to have certain experiences of being more settled right? What does it feel like when we're more settled? You just start to feel you're a little deeper in. Your mind is not jumping all over the place as badly. You're more steady. Maybe you feel more clear in your mind. Maybe the clarity, right? You look to see how is it for you. It could feel pleasant. You don't want to go chasing after some idea of what we think PT is, of bliss, like I'm supposed to have this bliss. There's no supposed to. It's just what's actually happening. And it, you may have some experiences, feeling expansive a little bit. We talked about this last time, right? And what is PT? Some people will see some lights, whether it's fixed or diffuse. You might hear some sounds. Most people don't, but some do. You might feel the sense in the body, maybe energy's moving in it. Stillness, calm. There's all these different experiences we have, stable. Uh, mindfulness can feel more bright and clear. Your awareness feels sharper in some way. Many different experiences of samadhi, and we just notice what is happening there, whatever it is. And you just stay with your object. And if you stay with your object over time, it will become stronger. Your, your, the, these ex samadhi experiences will grow. If you're with a teacher like Lee Brasington, he will say pretty early on when you have any kind of pleasant experiences, let go of the object and shift so the pleasant experience itself is the object. Put your attention on the pleasant and let that become, and that's what will deepen and deepen. You can try that if you want. That does work for some people. Other people find if you let go of, say, the breath or your object, I'll, I'll just say breath, just please know I mean any practice that you're doing. Some people, if they let go of the breath too early and go to the pleasant, it, they, it, they kind of lift out. It's, they, they lose their concentration. Some teachers will say stay with the breath a lot further, longer. 
find, play with it. What happens if you shift over to the pleasant early? That you feel like that's working. What happens if you stay with your object? The pleasant will still be there. And then at some point, regardless of how you're practicing, the breath and the samadhi feeling will feel like they're coming together in your experience as one blended thing. That's your, if you want to use the term nimitta, you could just call it your nimitta. Your, your, I'll call it the, instead of the breath and the samadhi, I'll call it the samadhi breath. And now that's your new object and you stay with that where you feel like the breath has the pleasant, all the expansiveness, the light, the bliss, whatever kind of, it, sort of you'll, it'll be clear when it happens. They're sort of all one thing and you stay with this blissful breath. That's your object and just let it take you. And that's kind of a simple overview of a way you can choose to practice. And that won't be so different from any of the ways that mostly insight meditation itself is taught. A common way that insight meditation is taught is they'll all start you on some kind of primary object to help you settle. But then they may at some point shift away from that and not put attention on any particular object. And they might use language such as, well, just be present for for whatever's arising, passing away in the moment. That's an example right, of insight. You could do that, but if you want to emphasize the samadhi, give more emphasis to the breath for longer. Stay with it for longer and see for yourself what happens as it deepens. Do you feel like it's actually opening to more awareness of your body and your mind? Or do you feel like you're losing it? How's it going? How do you feel about it? And you'll know the way, the way, and you just can follow that. If you need to talk to a teacher, that's fine. So it, it can be very simple in that way. And the, and, the, and the pathway can open up, yeah, as we become more aware and clear. I will say a little bit about moving through jhanas also. We'll come back to that. There's different techniques. But the basic practice, from my perspective, is what it really comes down to is how do we find the starting point I'm guessing many of you are very experienced meditators. There's only a few people here I know, but I'm, I'm assuming some of you might be quite new. Maybe you already know your best, I'll call it your home base practice. Right? You, have to, you have to just try it out and experiment and see. Um, if you don't know all the many kind of practices, you could try some of those Vasudhi Maga practices if you want. If some of you know my book, my second book about this the how-to meditation book, I list some different practices in there. Many, many sources you can go to. And you pick something, you just try it. It's not complicated. Yeah. Um, is that you, Kip? Yes. Please go. Oh, thank you. Um, so I've been on a Lee Brasington retreat. It was an online one for 10 days. Um, I've also been on a Samadhi retreat that was taught um, in the um, tradition of Pyok Sayadaw. So you know um, those two ends of the spectrum. Yes, and um, I've also been on a meta retreat 
um, that was actually one of my first retreats. Um, I've been practicing for like over 25 years. Um, and I, my question is two parts. First of all, I did the Lee Brasington technique didn't work for me. Right. I, I just as you said, I I kept fault my my concentration dwindled as soon as I went to the pleasant sensation. Yeah. Um, the Pog Sayadaw method did work better. I felt quite concentrated during the Samadhi retreat. Um, um, didn't reach Jhana, but in a eight day retreat, you don't really expect that. Um, however, I had the most powerful concentration that I can recall in the meta retreat. So my question is twofold. What do you think of meta as a concentration object? Um, and then, um, what do you suggest if like, in awareness of breathing without, with or without metta, I experience as soon as I sit down, I, I have enough practice so that as soon as I sit down, I settle very quickly. Yeah. And I feel this upwelling of, of joy and happiness suffusing my body, but then fatigue comes in and I, I lose clarity. So that's kind of a two part question. Yeah. So, well, I'm, I appreciate that. And actually that's a great example of, practicing in different styles and seeing for yourself what, you know, what works. So first of all, um, well, you know, for yourself, you don't need me to say it, but uh, for uh, metta, meaning loving kindness, uh, is a very powerful technique. And it will be the probably the best technique for many people. Uh, extremely powerful technique. I don't know how you were practicing, but let me just name a little and you can share if you want to. So metta is taught in different ways. One of the common ways it's, were you repeating phrases or were you just going straight to the feeling? Uh, repeating phrases. Right. Simple phrases. Yeah. yeah. May all beings, whatever. There's many phrases. May all beings be happy. You probably had your own phrases or peaceful, you know, just beautiful phrases, right? So one of the ways that metta is commonly taught is what, what you're just saying is as you, you'll, you'll repeat these phrases and you may hold in your mind what say there's different categories of people, right? They'll take the benefactors. That's traditional language. Someone that's easy to feel the love for, keep them in your mind and you repeat the phrases, right? And um, so basically what you're doing there is a mantra practice. Hmm. Let me say something about mantra. Mantra is some people out loud, but mostly silently, mentally repeating short or longer phrase. For people for whom mantra works, you could actually take a nonsensical, that meant is more than this, but you could take a nonsensical word phrase and repeat it over and over, and that rep, mental repetition would get you deeply, it's, it's a pathway to jhana. Metta does, the way you're talking about metta is takes the, so mantra works for you, you take that power, but because the words have meaning, it actually adds a whole nother dimension. And so you supercharge the concentration with the metta. And um, it's, it's more than nonsensical phrases. It's got, as you know for yourself, very, very powerful. And then what happens, the feeling comes up. It's not just the phrase anymore. It leads to the feeling. And then you could stay with the phrases or the feeling itself can become the object now. 
uh, right? So, and then there's a whole thing, how we work with that. And then that's a, I mean, that's really deep. That's full blast genre practice. All, it could be your whole practice for some people. Another way I'll just mention for completeness that people do meta practice is they go, they don't use the phrases at all. Just another style where they go straight to the feeling it early on. And maybe you use, maybe you bring to mind a person or it could just be something that, that helps your mind get into a beautiful state. And, but you, other people say, well, wait, what do you mean? I go right to the feeling. I, I can't just gin up a feeling. And so fine for them, they can't go straight to the feeling, but for other people, there actually is a pathway that's taught. Um, and that is their practice where you try to get as any kind of feeling you can get up. And then however you get it, you might listen to some beautiful music, watch nature, bring to mind a person or something, art. And then you, it's just like Lee Brasington. He very quickly wants to put your attention on the pleasant. Here, you want to put your attention on the feeling of meta itself as the object. You don't, you, and then that opens up for people. So all of these different ways, are, if that's your style, uh, you know for yourself are just very powerful and, uh, and just go with it. Regarding the breath, now this is another way you could, so this is the diversity of practices. You could let the breath come in with the metta as a stabilizing, you have to see if, it, if that's what you like to do, if it works. The breath can be a stabilizing factor to help keep you stabilized. So they're kind of both in your awareness. You're not really splitting your awareness, but they're both together in your awareness. If that works, some people may not know what that means to have them both in their awareness. So the breath is there along with however you're practicing metta. And it can even be that those two can get blended so that it's a metta breath. Just mm -hmm. like I was saying, it could be the PT, the Samadhi breath. Can become so there are different flavors of how you experience it and it's like wow this is very interesting i'm with my breath but it's a breath of metta how is that that's kind of interesting but when it happens it'll be obvious so you can choose how you're using all these different things and experiment and you've been meditating so long maybe you know i don't know if i can say anything that you didn't know it sounds like you're very experienced the last well, have, yeah go ahead i haven't tried combining the breath with metta so that's yeah. new but you just brought it up. So something brought it up in your mind. So, yeah. And the only other thing I would say about that is um, about the falling asleep. I, I don't know. That's a, I don't, since I don't know you, I, I don't know what's going on. It could be maybe take that offline or something. I, I just don't know what to say about that. Okay. Well, thank you. It's nice when we get to hear from, from other people, because we get to see, um, some other people will relate to that. Others will get to see just the diversity of how, how we all are and how we practice. <clears throat> I'm just taking a moment to see if anybody's waving to talk. Okay. Um, one thing I would like to do then, since we've got a pause here, I'd like to, sh I'd like to come back to the end just like we're doing really practice oriented. I want to say a few things about, I said a little bit just about my own, just a quick way to talk about how to start practice and, and move towards Samadhi. 
I also want to say something about John and moving through it. It may be a little getting ahead of maybe where some of you are, but just in the back of your mind to keep in mind. But I, I hope we'll be okay. I want to just make a little shift here because um, I, this is going to be, uh, I'm just going to do it. I, I'm, you could, I'm hesitating here because this is what I'm going to say is going to be concentra- um, controversial and I don't want to, um, I don't want to cause any um, <laughs> problems for anyone, but I want to talk about the four stages of enlightenment. I want to name them because it's part of the model in Theravada Buddhism. And a number of quote of people have sent me some different texts, uh, chats here about asking about it and what leads to it and everything. So I want to, uh, I feel like I just need to respond to it. So in the Theravada model, there's this idea of, um, you'll hear this language of this goal of, they call it, ending the cycle of births and deaths. What's that? <laughs> so uh, we can talk about what it is, actually, if you want a little bit, but that's I, I'm going to just pass over it unless someone brings it up. But the idea in the te- old text is you want to attain, attain something called nirvana in Sanskrit or nibbana in Pali. They call it the deathless. So we're going to leave it undefined for right now. But um, again, I'll leave it to you. I'm happy to chat about it a little bit. Um, And it's in in the model has four stages. They call it four stages of enlightenment. And the idea is if if you're using, I know that language for some of you might be, what do you mean ending the cycle of births and deaths? That seems kind of, but just let that be for right for now. Um, the idea of um, the first stage is something called a stream enterer. A lot of people say, I want to be a stream enterer, right? Many of you won't be thinking in those terms. I, I, don't, I don't use that model myself, but um, um, it's just, I don't know. But um, um, it's a big deal in the Theravada. And so the idea of a stream enter, well, let me back up. So it's using a particular model where to, to gain these stages of enlightenment are not stages of any particular meditative state or experience. They're stages of, of letting go. And let me pull my notes up here because um, I forgot all the, yeah. So there's a list here, another list called the 10 fetters. Well, what's a fetter? Fetters is something that keep us bound up or held back in some way. So the fetters are the thing that keep us, you could say, caught in suffering is a way to think about the 10 fetters. And there's a list of the 10 fetters. And I've got the list here if we need to bring it up. And these stages of enlightenment are attained by um, having certain of the, these 10 fetters drop away. However you get there. They have something called the asavas in Pali, which are sometimes called corruptions or taints. And there's a list of those also. And when those asavas are destroyed, different kind of like sense sense craving. Um, uh, Someone asked me, what model do I use? If not that four path model, I'll answer that. um, um, The... um, it's a fine model. I'm not saying you shouldn't use the model. Um, 
destruction of the asavas is traditional language. I know some of this might, I hope it doesn't confuse you because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. You, you, these, these fetters drop away. That's the model. So you enter this thing, become something called a stream enterer, which is, um, the first three of the 10 fetters have dropped away. And what they say is, if you become a stream enter, you have a maximum of seven lifetimes more if you have to believe in re rebirth in this model. <clears throat> this is us, you know, it's got rebirth in there too, as part of the model. And um, then you become once called a once returner, that's the next, where you've got only one more when two more fetters, so you have a total of the five lower fetters have dropped away. Okay. Now you're a once returner, which means you would get reborn back kind of in this kind of realm once more time and then on to maybe higher realms or whatever before, uh, in your remaining births. And then a non-returner, you don't come back to the, like the, the human realm. You're just reborn in some, you know, higher realm. And then finally, an arahat is the fourth stage of enlightenment. Um, uh, uh, of um, where when you're done, you, you retain this Nibbana or Nirvana, the deathless, which we've left undefined. Now, um, it's a really great model. It's a beautiful model. This idea when you look at the fetters and to live in a way where you freed your mind from different kinds of you know, clinging and restlessness and ignorance and uh, ill will is one of them. There's a lot of things. If you look at the model of the 10 fetters, you can just do a web search on the 10 fetters. If you, those of you have my first Samadhi book, it's in the appendix there. And um, it's a beautiful model. So I really have a lot of respect for the model. I'm saying this because I'm about to say something. And please don't, if this is, you know, I don't think it, what I'm about to say, I have to say this because I've never, ever heard anybody in any of the Dharma world say what I'm about to say. So don't freak out. Okay, I'm going to say it. Are you ready? Nobody knows if this is how the universe actually works. It's a model. I heard some people, I saw several people's mouths drop open. I saw you. Nobody knows if that's how the world. I don't care who it is. They don't know. It's a model. Nobody will say that it's taken as an article of faith in, in the Dharma tradition. I like the model a lot. I think it's a beautiful model. I'm not saying it's not how the universe works. I don't care if they're, you're at the retreat center and they're sitting up on the stage in robes and everybody's bowing at their feet. They don't know if this is how the universe works. We use it as a model. The reason I say that is, okay, that was the thing, right? the most probably controversial thing. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. I don't know, maybe I'm going to be excommunicated. Why do I say that? Only one reason I would even say it. If we hold the model with right view, it's a beautiful model to aspire towards, and I encourage it. The problem is a lot of people, maybe not you, suffer around this model. I got to get to this. I'm not that. And am I? And it just can it, the model can create suffering. And so what I want to hope is, is how can we approach this in a way where you don't suffer? 
And if we understand that we use these systems, we use these models, we use these traditions, but it's actually taking us past something beyond all of the conceptual models. What is that? We hold it with wisdom. There is a, um, uh, so if you want to aim for stream entry, it's great. One of the problems that people create suffering is just like there's Dharma wars about, the reason I said this is there's a lot of Dharma wars out there about just like what is jhana? You cannot believe how bad it out is out there about all this loving, compassionate Buddhas about what stream entry. No, you don't. This is right. Don't study with that teacher. This is wrong. This is it. Just like with jhana, when you look at the first three fetters, it's not clear what experientially that actually entails. And so there's a wide range of views about what makes you a stream enterer. For some people, it's actually a quite dramatic experience, a very specific experience, uh, a quite profound experience that has to happen to you. For other people, I remember having a conversation with Joseph Goldstein about this many, many you know years ago. And he told me that uh, from him, it's like, it's like you don't even notice it. And the model, the image of that is like, if any of you know in, I'm not an astrophysicist, but you know, there's what they call a black hole where the gravity is so strong. If you get close enough to the black hole, nothing can get out because it's such strong gravity. Even light can't get out. And they have something called the event horizon, which is a certain distance. It's far out from the black hole. And if you're outside the event horizon, the gravity is getting stronger as you get closer, but you can still kind of get out. But if you cross the event horizon, you've crossed the point in space where the gravity is so strong now, if you tried to turn around and go back, you couldn't do it. And if you were to, in a spaceship, cross the event horizon, you would not notice it. When you got kept getting close to the black hole, you for sure notice it. But you cross this event horizon and there's no turning back. This is the idea that in, in, the Jack, in the Joseph Goldstein way of talking about it, is that you might pass this event horizon and your mind be so liberated that there's no turning back. But it may not have been dramatic. You may not even notice. You just may be living in a way of this profound equanimity and non-clinging. So there's, my point is there's different models of how you get there so we don't create suffering about what it is and is it. And, and, and I've known people who go to Burma and have had certain friends of mine actually um, and um, who've gone to Burma and they had a certain experience. They got a little diploma telling them they were uh, stream mentors, and that's fine. I'm not, again, disparaging it. But um, people I've known really well who I you know, had good relationships with, and I used to tease them about it because they came back. You know, they were great people and everything, but they were, their mind was just as liberated as before, and they were just as foolish and, as before. They didn't say, you know, so, you know, these models, um, we just want to hold them with wisdom. That's the point. And it's just like anything else. If it serves you, we go for it. So that's my only point in bringing that up. Um, now, if somebody wants to tell you they actually have direct psychic experience into all beings who've ever existed, 
who exist now and ever will, and that they can tell you yes, so they know that's how the universe works, okay. So that's the model. Now, someone asked me, what, uh, chat, and, and I'll share my own with you because it actually might be, I don't know if it'll be of interest to you. Um, uh, so I just, I'm not against the model for or against it. I just don't think like that. My own practice is I'm not so much thinking about where I'm trying to get. Uh, I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, my mind doesn't work like that. I'm really interested in the quality of just what's here, which is really all we have anyway. So I'm not interested in, in, in ending cycles of birth and death or not, or different stages of enlightenment, but I'm very interested in taking the mind of, of non-clinging and the heart profoundly open in, in metta and love as far as I can take it. I think that's the same thing that the path is talking about, but I just don't use that model that way. It's just a different way of tending to what's actually real and true in the present moment. And when my heart's closed off, let go, open the heart. When I'm stuck in reactivity, let go. And that's, that's sort of a present moment thing. So that's my own particular view about it for myself. What is yours? How do you hold all this? That's what's important, right? Maybe you really have this a model and maybe you aspire towards these, these really profound, wonderful states of liberation. Maybe you don't hold to any of that, whether it's rebirth or the, you know, just the whole cosmology and system and you're, um, you know, we each, I think it's important that we each find what we want and we don't want somebody else telling us what we should be aspiring towards. Right? The question is, what do you, what are you aspiring towards? We want to re hopefully reflect on Dharma teachings to inform what our intentions are and where we're aiming. But then we have to come to our own truth, right? And that's what's important. Not what, you know, somebody else tells us it should be. Yeah. Okay, I didn't get any hate mail texts. That's good. You know, I do think there's a Rotten Tomato icon that you could probably put up there. And if you wanted to throw one. So, yeah. so any comment about that? One of the things that then that um, um, is that gets more important is for many of us we may not reflect on these models and how we hold them whether we just really believe in them or we just use them or maybe we don't use them uh, how we relate to the system and the tradition that we're in but also then where do we want to aim if we can be more conscious in what we want to aim for then we can make conscious choices in, in what practices we use. So one of the things I would like to just offer up, if it's useful, is actually, um, actually, um, actually want, um, reflecting on where we want to, what we want to get from our practice. Why are we Dharma practitioners or meditators or Buddhists, whatever term you like? Right. Um, 
you may or may not, you know, a lot of people, if you ask them why they're meditators, I don't know, I'm just drawn to it. Maybe they don't know, that's fine. But it can be useful to kind of, especially as we get more experience to reflect on um, what, um, what do we want to aim for? In the, in, uh, the, the theme of, of this class, uh, for Samadhi and Jhana, maybe kind of think about, well, what, what would I like to aim for? What do I want? And then we can make that more conscious. And so uh, for those of you who see the value in Samadhi and Jhana, then you can make it more conscious and start practicing in the ways that, that emphasize that. If you haven't already been doing it, right? Someone just asked a question that leads right into what I'm talking about. Um, someone said, if we didn't want, quote, something, would we still meditate? So, look, here's the thing. We're supposed to say don't cling and don't chase after things. Let's be honest. We all want good meditation. We, look, you know there's no such thing as a, as a good or bad meditation, right? I hope, do, do, did we talk about this last time? No such thing. We all know what we mean when we say good or bad meditation, and we're going to keep talking like that. There's only what's happening in the present moment. We put a value judgment on it, but the question is, how do we work skillfully with whatever's happening? So I would like to propose one possible way to think about it. Someone may have a different take than what I'm saying, is we can sort of have our cake and eat it too, if you will. There is a path and it's leading somewhere. Whatever your conception of the path is, this is really the reason why I brought this up because one conception is four stages of enlightenment. Um, and it doesn't matter when I say, I guess I was shooting my mouth off a little bit. I do believe it, but maybe it was a little too strong when I said, nobody knows it. I do, nobody knows if that's the way that it works. I've, I hung around all those teachers. None of them claim to know, if you really ask them, not more. I'm not supposed to tell you that. Don't go tell them I said this or anything, but not one of them is gonna say. But if they hold it as, they hold it in a, in a skillful, good way, and they use it as a model. Or some people may hold these different, whatever your model is, in an uncritical, just blind acceptance, and that's, you know, whatever. Um, so whatever your model is for what you're aiming for, and please, again, don't let anybody tell you what your highest aspiration should be in your life. And it doesn't matter if it's written in a sutra or not. What's your truth? Then um, how do we get there? So there's a path. We want to get somewhere. We would not practice if we're not trying to get something. But you'll also hear, so you'll hear language attaining, getting, aspiring on the path. But you'll also hear language such as nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to get. That has a different feeling. Well, we want to move along the path, but the trick is we can go move on the path by not trying to get anywhere, by just trying to be here. If we pay attention to how we're being here, 
then that's the best way to move along the path. So we can want whatever we want, John estates, liberation, whatever we want, freedom. We can really want it. We don't have to pretend we don't. But we bring as, but we try to let, you may have to fake it a little bit, but let go around that the best you can in order to be more relaxed and at ease so you're not tense, to try your best just to be with what's happening in a skillful way. So we just be here now and it furthers us on the, furthers us on the path too. That's kind of what I would say. We can kind of have the best of both. need to know where we want to go or you're going to end up somewhere, right? <laughs> We're all going to end up somewhere. Yeah. One other potential difficulty is, is that we can't see our own blind spots. We're kind of all stuck in this situation. We all have blind spots. And by definition, you can't see them. Right? So you can see, but it's actually a good news, it's kind of a good news situation. Fortunately, it seems the way the universe works is um, you don't need to be able to see any more than you, than you can see. Just doing the best you can, making your best choices, you'll move a little further along and you'll have a little more clarity. You know, there's a, there is, there is a, uh, the uh, author E.L. Doctorow, who had a quote about writing a novel. I'll ch I love the quote, but I'm going to change it to living life, or I'll say Dharma practice. He said, writing a novel, I'm going to say Dharma practice, is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can complete a journey of a thousand miles that way. And it's true. You see what you can see, and you make your best choice, and we move a little further ahead. And then it'll open up a little more awareness about yourself and we progress in that way. So it's okay just to start where we are. We don't have to be any better. And also you don't have to be any better at meditating than you are. This is actually good news. Uh, my son is, is quite an accomplished musician. He's a, a jazz trombone player. Plays a little piano. Well, if I sit down to play something, I have no, no ability at all. Zero. But even for me, I may not become a professional musician, but if I were to, starting with no skill at all, I could sort of dink around on the keys or try to play the trombone and a little, and with practice and time, you would start from nothing and it would grow. Same thing in meditation. So uh, um, we need to be careful about judging ourselves in our practices also. Right. Actually, um, you're probably the least qualified to judge your own practice because uh, um, you're not objective is all I mean. You're the expert of having the experience, but what you make of it, you're just not objective. I, we're all that way. I'm putting myself into that category. too. So we want to be careful uh, about judging ourselves. And, you know, the Buddha had this teaching on um, called uh, conceit. Manas. If you think you're better than someone, it's conceit. But if you think you're less than an equal, that's conceit too. That's kind of interesting. What they mean is the self-centered, just so consumed about how am I doing and comparing. So if you're going to judge yourself anyway, 
and you know, we're not going to listen to the Buddha and we're going to judge ourselves. Uh, go by your intention. Everyone here has a sincere intention. I mean, intentions are mixed. So it's not all 100% pure. We all have a good intention. And we'll all, um, um, that's what's going to carry you. So all of these are kind of the background we need. Attitudes that I would suggest we have. And then when we bring this, this idea of having more ease and relaxation to our practice, we can start with some of these techniques. And then as the way opens, it can reveal itself more. And I want to add one more uh, main piece that I think is important. As the practice develops, then, you bring the best attitude you can, you just do the best you can. One of the things you might look to in your practice, don't stir your mind up too much with this, but it's actually important. Every once in a while when you remember, check in. There's a sense of doing that we bring to our practice. You are placing your attention on an object, for example. You're putting a certain amount of, you could say, effort or intentionality. Any of you who've ever dropped deeper in the meditation know that in the beginning, when we don't have much concentration, it can be harder. But as the concentration deepens, it's a support, and it does some of the work for us. And we have to use a lighter touch of effort. Eventually, when you get into jhana, there's no doing or effort at all. It just does you. But to get to that point, there's an interesting thing that I encourage you to, to really play with that could make a big, big difference in your practice at any stage. How much effort are you putting in versus how much is there a feeling of letting go and letting it just take you? There's a different feeling. Especially if the samadhi starts going, you can actually sometimes have a feeling where I'm just sort of letting go into something. A feeling, if, you don't, if this doesn't resonate, don't worry. A feeling of letting surrender into it. The pull of samadhi will pull you. But other times, no, it's, it, it, we need to keep the effort up. And so it's a balance there of how much we keep doing and how much we let go of doing and let it do us. So that's a big topic. But I, I just wanted to put that out there because that's a different flavor of practice that helps deepen. This is a way to deepen into the samadhi. So I realized that um, I have more things I can talk about here. Um, I'm pausing at this. Some questions are coming in on the chat too. But, um, um, you know, I wanted to just go off from these texts. And I know this was getting a little more of a Dharma talk kind of a feel. But I want to just bring in some different flavors about what I think is so important is however we, when we do these practices, we'll use different models here now. And we might be able to understand how they all fit together and inform each other so we can make more informed choices. And then what's the attitude we're bringing there of ease and relaxation, about trying to get somewhere without making it an object of craving and clinging. So we find that balance of just being present and moving forward how we use models and what models we choose to and how we make choices in what we want to aim for. These are the questions we all have. Or we don't all have, but I mean, I'm, that are, I think are important things to reflect on if you find it useful. Someone asked, is it necessary to work with a teacher in order to deal with our blind spots? Um, 
uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's different for everyone. I mean, how do you know, it's a funny thing. Like, I guess in a way it is because oftentimes I'm just reminded I've gone in when you, for those of you who know meditation retreats in our tradition, one of the models is you go on retreat and every day or so you'll, you'll get scheduled to go meet with a teacher and just have a few minutes just to chat about, they call it practice interviews about your practice, how it's going. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in there and I'm, upset or crying or suffering or something's going on. And then the teacher will just point something out. It's so obvious when they said it. Didn't see it. It was right there, right behind me, but I couldn't see it. Someone else who's more objective can look and say, well, you know, you're whatever. And then you see it. And um, so I do think it can be very useful, whether it's teachers, friends. Look, if you are around people, some of, some of us have people, say, for example, you may have some of us live alone. Some of us may live with others. Um, but, you know, if you're in a situation where there's people around who get to know you and you hang around them, your blind spots will get pointed out. Isn't that true? So... There's always opportunities. I like to think of, of life kind of as, as a, if you th- it's sort of a cliche to think of life as a teacher. But if you think of all the, if you're open to the teaching of life, it's always giving us feedback, right? Uh, whether it's individuals or circumstances. And if we're open, we're clear. This is why we need the samadhi, because we need to be present and clear enough and not on automatic pilot. One of the big benefits of samadhi is you're on automatic pilot so much less it's like being on retreats where you're walking around and not having to do anything to be in this state of heightened awareness. It just is. That's what starts to carry through more and more and becomes a state of your being. In fact, you can get to a place where there's no difference anymore between retreats and daily life if you take it far enough because you're just in that state, right? And it's, so it's a great, and that's a support when that happens. So life, people, teachers, life can, can point out our blind spots or sometimes we just have realizations. That's this question. Does life bring opportunities to see one's blind spots? And is this sufficient for inner growth? Well, we have to look for that for ourselves, right? I would ask you to look. I can't say for you. I would take that same thing and ask you the question. Is your life bringing opportunities to see your blind spots? And is it sufficient for your inner growth? So that's, we each have to look to that. There's no one to tell us, right? Isn't Nibbana, Nirvana, enlightenment, deathless, a state when the mind as a filter has ceased and there is a seeing of true reality? Well, I do have something to say about that. (laughs) You may have noticed, I've got something to say about everything. Um. Yes and no. So this is an interesting thing. What's the deathless? So um, in, in, our, in this model, if you look at sort of the nature of reality, there's what they call samsara and nirvana. So samsara is sort of all the states of being and existence. And you can go up experientially through different higher, subtler levels of what's true. And you get to a place where it seems like all existence is just pure being, pure awareness, you know, the sense of self's not there so much, pure love. There's all these, that's the highest level within samsara. 
when that all dissolves away into the deathless, there's really nothing, it's not true to say nothing. It's the unmanifest. There's not any seeing of true reality. There's, it's beyond all of that. It's just the unmanifest. I would call it that. And matter of fact, I think the genius of kind of the Buddha was to call it the deathless because any, it's, it's ineffable, meaning it's beyond verbal conceptual categories. If that ever happens for you, um, um, it's different than a, just a little aside. If any of you know, they talk about something called cessation where you kind of go unconscious can get mistaken for this. And that's not the same. In unconscious, you still are in existence, but you're unconscious. The deathless, you've just dissolved out of, there's nothing there. That's what the ending of birth and death really is. And it is the end of suffering because there's no one there to, to suffer. It's a, this is a tricky topic to get into on the deathless. We'd have to really hang out here for a long time. So any of the ways that you think of or hear people talk about uh, the deathless or nirvana, I think are all good because when you get into these subtle realms, you're doing pretty well. If you're in a state of being and it's just this beautiful place and of non-clinging and the sense of self is thinner and you see more of the true nature of reality, that's pretty good. And if it goes for something else called dissolving into the manifest, okay. I mean, it's all, you know, getting into subtle realms here. I was just answering because the question was there. I didn't want to just. Uh, I'm not going to be teaching an online jhana retreat anytime soon. I have done those, but um, um, I'm just now going back to start teaching um, in-person retreats again. I haven't done anything since after, uh, since before COVID. I'm just now coming back. And those are starting up, actually one in the spring. So if anybody's interested, you know how to, you know, the contacts there, you know, on the email list and find out. That's up to you. Someone asked, how can lay practitioners bring the best of monastic practice into lay life? Well, I, it's hard for me to say that because I guess you have to see for yourself. Um, you know, when you think of monastic practices, that's a big world. Um, what for you, you feel like the best of that is to serve you the best. There are, you know, the monastic world is, it's a model and there's different variations of that model. Uh, how uh, you relate to those models, the monastic form is really, really powerful for many people. And for other people, it's just not a good form. So um, uh, um, that's, and I, and I think this isn't controversial at all. I think pretty much everybody who even in the monastic world and but anyone in the Buddhist world would agree with that. It's, it's finding what's the fit for you. And there are people um, who've been in robes, monastics for decades, and then they decide it's not a good fit and they come out. Other people who've been lay people for a long time go in. So finding your way and then what's the best of it, I would say, how do you identify what's the best? And you use that term for you. And then that's a question. Okay, how can I, how can I incorporate this into my life? That's all. I don't know how else to answer that. Again, you have to see for yourself, right? Because it's not all one size fits all. Just a moment, please. I'm looking through here. There's a bunch of questions. 
Uh, so here's a good question. So I've been, so most of what we've done last week and probably the first half or two thirds of this has been taking a look at kind of this, these, the source texts. And I've offered my own commentary or my own take on some of it too, as one perspective. Um, and then I've gotten, gotten more into just my own take on some things around practice encouragements and things like that. And someone brought up what I think is a really super great question. And I'm going to give you my, I'm going to let Jack Cornfield answer that question about, they basically said, well, you know, Richard, you're kind of offering your own take. Like you're sitting here saying they weren't criticizing me, but it's like, no one knows if, if the, if that's how the universe really works kind of thing. We use it as a model. It's like, well, some people might say that's well and good. Other people might say they didn't use this language. Well, that's just ignorance. And you're just giving like wrong view and bad advice, something like that. Right. Um, and you know, you're teaching a certain perspective, but other people would say that's well and good, but you might not be pointing to what's really the Buddha was talking about. And I think that was like a super good comment and question. I'd like to just, if I could, share you some, share with you something from Jack Cornfield. This is a, a, an interview. I was interviewing, you know, I got that in my book here. I interviewed some of the, these teachers. This is an interview with Jack. Um, this, is, this is brief. He said... Um, so I asked what his thoughts were because of such a range of views about what's right or skillful samadhi. And he said, uh, what is true about Buddhist practices is that the Buddhist teachings are a great mandala of skillful means. And then when he talks about when he put his, fir- put his first book out there, which is called Living Buddhist Masters, which is a wonderful book, or I highly recommend it. It's, I think it's, it's, been republished i think it's called living dharma uh, most of because you know most of them have died so they renamed it because they're not alive anymore and he said when he put together he i think he interviewed about a dozen people and by the way if you did nothing else but read the the introduction to that book i thought it was quite worthwhile but you get to see such a range of styles of these different practices and he said um he 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 said of these different great Buddhist masters. In many cases, they did not agree with one another on the best way to practice. Sometimes the styles were diametrically opposed to one another. And goes on to say more about that. And then he said, I did this so that people would understand that there are a number of ways of skillful means to cultivate the factors of enlightenment and come to liberation. And then this is what he said. Any practice that cultivates mindfulness and wise effort and investigation and joy and concentration and calm and equanimity and compassion will bring one to liberation. And there are many, many ways to do that. And I really appreciated that because that's kind of getting what I'm talking about. Maybe it was a more skillful way than when I said, you know, nobody knows if this model is true or not. Really what I mean is all of these models, um, um, we want to see what works best for us and to use, and it's not one way. Um, the understanding of the mon- more Jack, the understanding of the mandala of skillful means is enormously helpful as we bring these Buddhist teachings to America. And he said, um, 
um, the maturity and wisdom is comes when we see multiplicity paradox and complementary differences with a spacious mind and open heart. And um, base, and then I said to him, of course, there are those who will say that's well and good, but there really is a quote right way that we do need to understand that other paths might be good in certain ways, but they might actually not be leading to what the Buddha was talking about. And then Jack said, and this is kind of the end of what I want to say with him, that's the conservative position. But in fact, if you go back to the old countries of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, you can't get the Theravada masters themselves to agree. I have heard so many masters say, I teach the true way, right from the suttas, from the original. This is the real way the Buddha taught. I've heard a whole bunch of masters say that, and yet they contradicted one another when they said it. So I don't buy it. That's called ignorance. The real freedom is what Ajahn Chah understood. The real freedom is the freedom of letting go. It's not the freedom of clinging to what believes is historically true, because what is historically true is this mandala, and it's not one way. So I appreciated his take there. Yes, the book is called Living Dharma now. It used to be Living Buddhist Masters. So I hope that we um, can, um, uh, you know, just hold that kind of spacious attitude. Because really, one another way to think about it is you can say, well, how much should I trust myself and how much do I let go and surrender and trust some teacher or teaching? Well, even if you're letting go to support one teacher, you're ultimately still making that decision. You're still kind of you really are always we're left with going on our own trust in ourselves to make some choice. So we're kind of stuck with that, that we really are put back onto ourselves, whether that choice is to let go and follow someone or just listen into our heart or whatever the form is. So we're always really following our own guidance. And I think if we keep our sincere intention in heart, it, at heart, that's what comes in to support us. Yeah. And some people have put some nice comments here that didn't go just to me, but I think look like they've gone out to everyone. So you can look at the comments. Um, just a few other things were coming near the end, but um, some say you have to be a monastic to obtain stream entry. How true is that? Well, that's, of course, this um, getting into that model of stream entry. Some people do say that, but there's plenty of people uh, who, who do not say that. And even had people I know who were, um, um, even I think in the Theravada tradition, it's not held that you have to be a, um, a monastic to be a stream enter. I think the tradition would say, if you become an arahant, then you have to convert over to be a monastic or something like that. They use that kind of way of speaking. You know, we can't have these lay people becoming arahats after all. That would not do. Yeah. Mm 
We've got about 15 minutes left. And I do have something we could do as a little, oh, uh, let me see if anybody has any more comment or question here real quick. So now the questions are getting a little off. We've kind of gotten into a different kind of feeling in the way of talking now, but what is the best way to gain concentration quickly? Um, that's easy. Easy. The best way to con do concentration quickly is to do what is two things. Number one, find what you can do to bring a sense of ease and relaxation the best you can. Don't create stress in order to let go of stress. You don't have to be any good at it. Just the best you can, even just a little bit. Is there something I can do just for the moment? You don't have to, where I can bring a little e more ease and relaxation. Go for a walk in nature. Listen to some beautiful music. Or just in your mind, relax or do body scans or do anything that helps you get some degree of ease and relaxation a little more. And then from that, find the meditation practice I'm not, I can't get into that. I'd have to talk to you specifically to help. Everybody can find their practice. And, you know, if you, if you have someone else to help you, it's fine. I can help you. Um, uh, it's not hard to do. You might have to experiment. Find the practice you resonate with the best. Do that. And then it's up to your own, to your, what your desire is, how much time you want to put in. Um, what your life circumstances are. We want to not create suffering to fight against our life circumstances. You don't want to fight yourself in your life. So your life circumstances will allow a certain amount of practice. Most people do need some um, regularity. Um, you don't have to do retreats, but it's very powerful. I've always, you know, I, it, um, I've been big on retreats in my own life. Some people emphasize them more. You know, there's not a have to here, but that's a good way to practice. Um, and, uh, you know, and then that's what you do. It's not complicated. I think the, the, the trouble for so many of us is, is that, um, you know, we, we all have busy lives and it can be hard. And a lot of people actually judge their Dharma practice. Oh, I meant to say this earlier. It's so common, so in case you find yourself doing this, judging their meditation, their Dharma practice by um, how concentrated they get. And um, it's fine to have some wise discernment to look at your how concentrated, so you can see, do I want to deepen it or not? And so we want, that can be wise, but it's not a way of judging your Dharma practice. It has, it's, it's really not directly... Um, you don't map it directly on how loving your heart is and how free from clinging you live and everything. That's not a samadhi thing. That's beyond jhana. So um, if you're having trouble finding time to meditate in daily life, you have a lot in common with most people. There are plenty of people who keep samadhi in daily life, but a lot don't. And I'll just tell you one quick story and hang on, Jeff, for one second. I, and I'll ask you, you can make your comment. For many years, I haven't done this for like 20 years, but I used to do a lot of work in prison Dharma back in the 70s and the 80s and, and 90s. 
I remember I went into one prison here in California, uh, down at Salina, in, in, in Soledad. There are two prisons down there. One of them is called Salinas Valley State Prison. It's a level four prison, like, like Pelican Bay. I mean, it's really kind of a bad place. And, and I, we had a group we met every week. And then you would have, um, um, every once in a while there'd be some violent incident. And they would lock everybody down for a few days, a few weeks, or sometimes for a few months until they got a handle on things. And every Everybody's basically in their cell all the time, except you'd come out individually like a couple of times a week to shower. That's it. They fed you in your cell, everything. So there was one time when that happened, and we, I couldn't go in and run the group. I could still go around and meet people in their cells, but I couldn't, couldn't run the group. So we'd been locked in for a long time, like a month or two. And then I came back, and um, the group came back, and I said, well, look, I know it's probably been rough. How are you guys doing? Are you okay? And one of the things I asked is, well, how's your meditation practice going <laughs> this one guy said I, I just couldn't find time to practice he's locked in it what has he got to do but i love that because that just showed you know you're not doing anything wrong if you can't find make yourself meditate it can be hard to do and the problem is once you have samadhi it feels so good you want to meditate but when you don't have the support of the samadhi, just when you could use the samadhi the most to support you, you have it the least. And it can feel hard to sit and be present with yourself. So we just know that and do the best you can and don't make a suffering about it. Yes, please, Jeff. You'll have to unmute yourself. Oh, you're unmuted. Please go. Yes. Uh, yes, I agree with what you just said. It's uh, true. Uh, I, I, my notes, I just wanted to end and be clear last week was the Pali Sutta's views of Samadhi and this week was uh, basically the Vishuddha Maga views of Samadhi and you outlined the very, very well uh, you know what you've done and uh, my notes then go and you came to the point which I'm not clear on the direction of what the message is because you brought in, then you want, after you let's see experiences of Samadhi, staying with the long breath and breathing, uh, the, the Damata breath, you then went to the, brought up the four stages. Sorry about that. Uh, no, well, no, you brought up the four stages of the, the Damata, the stream enterer, the once returner, the non returner the air hot and then all of a sudden it went nobody knows if this is how the universe works and i i'm not quite sure about those four uh references to i believe the theravada the fetters etc hindrances are those the buddha's message where is what is the buddha's message on samadhi Right. Are there any two different action? things. First of all, look, I, I wasn't thinking in this way when I brought up the um, the uh, the four stages of enlightenment, and I, again, right. I hope it was disconcerting. I, I guess I couldn't resist. Oh no, it fits it. into what you're. I, I just I feel so strongly that we have these models and we hold them in this way that's skillful and helpful. 
but right. uh, they're not skillful and helpful. We want to find the model that helps because in many flavors of Buddhism, they don't use that model. A lot of the Mahayana, well, I, you never hear them I, talk who, like that. Who, who, who uses those four stages? Who uses that, that model? That's, in, that's out of the out of the Pali, Pali yep. Buddhism. You could say it, Theravada Buddhist model is where that. I is. see which, which you spoke of last week. So my notes from last week are in. Uh, in the, the same in, room in, as the, out of Theravada Buddhism, that's where it is. Yes. And these four stages fit into the Theravada Buddhism, right? That's I that's think. that's the model. Won't find it in the Mahayana models. They just use different models. I see. I understand. Okay, uh, that okay. that's clear. Um, are, are there? Nobody knows what the uh, how the universe works. Is that true of the Shudamaga as well? Look, I just said that. Okay, just let, let it go. Oh, I see. Any I just made a general. Are, comment um i got it okay if you hang what around you me i'm gonna like that so i just okay I just, and i just on my notes i what by the way i tell it to those guys too oh no i understand so i just don't know this. and then they kind of laugh in private they all agree by the way yes I, so for my everyone notes for my personal notes i'd like to just uh be clear on what would you say is the buddha's message on samadhi go for it from the but the Buddha's angle. Look, it, you you find you find. Look, here's what I'm going to say, and then then we'll I'll respond, and I'll let Richard right. has his hand up too. Uh, let's just say this: whatever your view about it is, you can find all the evidence in the Pali Canon to support it. Okay. Oh yeah, I you know pick your style, and you and there's canonical evidence for it, so it's hard to say. The way I read the Pali Canon is it puts a huge. I don't see the Buddha saying do insight. I hear him saying do jhana. But, you know, pick your way. So that's my answer. Okay, it's, okay. It's yeah, all I, good. Uh, yeah, picking is not something I'm here to... Okay. But okay, I understand. Uh, yeah, thanks for the clarification. Hey, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. Richard, you, you, why don't you say only one more comment, and then um, I have a little short, like, three or four minute closing I'd like to invite us to do together. Okay. <clears throat> Richard, I, I want to thank you for your teaching uh, today, which kind of freed me from thinking that my teacher's way, who teaches just what the Buddha taught, he says, was the only way of teaching, right. uh, is very freeing for me. And also, uh, when you were talking about going into the prisons after this big lockdown, I was imagining like 40 enlightened prisoners because they had so much time to sit because being in covid uh, and staying home has really deepened my practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that time, it's just invaluable to me. Right, it, right. It's just like you know, by leaps and bounds, uh, and and it's made me love really yeah, yeah, love yeah. practice. So well, I appreciate you saying that, and I would just offer in response to that my own experience. I've gone off and on in the prisons for for several decades, and I've met a lot of people. Some of the most enlightened. I felt like I was almost like being with a guru or something. There's not many, but there's a few of these. I was with the men, not the women. So a few of these guys, they weren't meditators. But being in that situation for all those years, some of them were doing life without the possibility of parole. They almost mm -hmm. seemed like they were so liberated and enlightened because they had bumped up against, you know, I got to go in and then I leave. They didn't get to leave. And not everybody got there, but it was just this powerful just teaching and they would talk about what they've learned and come to in life, life and they were just these wise beings in there trying to help the younger guys and everything and and, and what didn't come from dharma or buddhism or, or meditation so 
that was what just life, they used it in the way, they wouldn't have chosen it, but anyway, so. So thank you for your comment, I appreciate that. Thank you. So here's what I'd like to invite for those of you who want to do this, it's gonna be super short. Oh, by the way, someone said something about SELA, which is, we haven't focused on that, but you know, these precepts and living in a way of not creating harm, so foundational and you know, we could spend, really that's a lifetime of inquiry just around how we deepen in non-harming. I want to offer something here. It's going to be literally maybe two or three minutes. If you want to participate in it, it's going to be a little, some guided reflections I'd like to give you to close. And you can see if this is of value for you or not. And to do this, you know, hopefully maybe, you know, we've been in all the talking and concepts and if you have found that your awareness has kind of gone out into the space, you might want to bring it back if you want, invite you to connect in with your body or into your mind and just connect in with yourself. And then what I want to do is I'm going to offer four reflections are very brief. I'll say each one with in a few different ways, because articulating in one way may land for you better than another way. And I'll only give 20 or 30 seconds each, um, just because we don't have time. And then we'll move to the next reflection. And if you find these are useful, then you can spend more time on these afterwards. Okay. So when you think of in your own life, But when you reflect on your intentions, your aspirations for how you want to live, who you want to be as a person, how you want to show up, what you want your life to be about, what are your highest, deepest aspirations for what you want, how you want to live, who you want to be, what you want your life to be in the highest and deepest sense? You may have words. You may have a felt sense and, or you, you know, just see how it lands for you. What do you really, what's it all about? What do you really want your life to be about in the highest and deepest sense? Okay, so you can let that one go out of your mind. And here's the second reflection. When you look at how you're actually living your life, in what ways or to what extent is there some disconnect or gap between your highest aspirations for your life and how you're actually showing up, how you're actually living and being? In what ways to what? What degrees is there some gap between your to your highest again intentions aspirations and the actuality of your life to what degrees and in what ways
Can you let that one go out of your mind? The third reflection, to whatever degree or in whatever ways there is a gap, which we all have between your highest intentions and aspirations and the reality of your life, what, what causes the gap? What are the things, situations, what is it? Or what are the things that kind of pull you away so you get disconnected from your highest intentions, your highest aspirations? What pulls you away? What gets you caught when you lose connection? Let that one go out of your mind. Fourth reflection. What will support you to close up the gap? What are the things, situations, people, whatever it is, that will support you to live in a way where you're more authentically living from the place, in alignment with the place, you actualize your highest, deepest aspirations and goals? to bring that alive for in your life? What, what's, what will support you? Are there things? What could that be? And then if you're ready, you could let that go out of your mind. Again, you know, you can see if that's, uh, uh, you know, of interest for you or not to reflect on that, but that's another thing. Just another example of are there ways we can get more conscious about, you know, making choices about what supports us and who we live, kind of people we're around, what we associate with, etc. So I hope that was useful for you. And if not, of course, like, like all of this, you just let it go. Find what supports you.